0: It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia, and around the world, it's time for the giddy carousel of pop. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast where we take an old issue of the Swingerillion Pop Mag Smash Hits and have a good nose through its pages. And as Live Aid celebrates its 35th anniversary in July 2020, we'll be looking at the corresponding issue of Ver Hits from the 17th to the 30th of July 1985 with a cast of thousands to help us along the way. We'll be hearing from David Hepworth, Mark Ellen and Barry McElhenney, three former Smash It editors, and also hit staffer William Shaw, who were all at Wembley Stadium on the day, along with TV director David G. Croft, one of the people responsible for what we saw on our TVs. Plus, some of you lot, our Pop Kid listeners, have sent us their memories of the biggest shared pop event we've ever experienced. But before we get any further, let's do some introductions and welcome our guest... I'm Simon Galloway, and with me, as ever, he's narrowly avoided being scissor-kicked by Adamant and a groping by Bono just to be with us. <laughs> yeah. With you meet and greet Mr Gavin Hogg? Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's true, all that happened, yeah. And to assist us on our quest, join us live from Phil Collins' Concord, it gives us great pleasure to welcome back to the carousel, Tim Robinson. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you can hear me from uh, the captain's
1: uh, station up here on the Concord. Yeah, I'm here with my arm around Phil Collins. Uh, delighted to be back and uh, always in reception for you guys. And if listeners who know Smash Hits well, in reception was always the euphemism for uh, readily available to appear. So uh, I'm sat here with in the reception with uh, Marilyn And uh, bluey
0: some, more of him later. As always, if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to a couple of amazing websites, Brian McCloskey's Light Punk Never Happened, and Smash It's Remembered. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this historic issue of The Mag. And you'll also find these links on our websites, GiddyPopPod.home.blog, and over on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop, or at GiddyPopPod. Now we've got loads to cover, so we'll be splitting the podcast into two parts. In this first part, we'll be looking at the Smash Hits coverage of Live Aid, plus the concert itself, and also how it was covered elsewhere in the music press. And in part two, we'll be going through the rest of this issue of the Hits as we would normally. So there's just one thing we need to know. Where were you on the 13th of July, 1985? And what were you doing?
2: I just kind of remember this huge thing, what was happening on the television. And um, I must have been quite of a talker when I was a child because my dad um, sponsored me to be silent through the whole thing. (laughs) Which I think I probably did a couple of hours, but um, I was a massive Paul Young fan. I was
3: looking out for him, really.
4: Uh, we went to the Royal Tournament at Ells Court in West London, and I can remember status quo kicked it off with... Is it rocking all over the world as we parked yes, the was. car? And, of course, then it's sort of chaps from the Navy uh, pulling big guns around for the next four or five hours, and we must have got back home to Essex. It would have been dark by then, I think,
5: uh, be the the all joining each other on stage for the final sing-along i think so yeah i remember
2: almost nothing about live aid
0: so that's what pop kids joanne fishwick and brett tremble were up to but tim what about you uh, right. Well, I was. I
1: think last time I was on this show. Amazingly, I've been on before. I was still in the, what is now known as East Riding of Yorkshire and the then Uh In a not very picturesque sort of what I would describe as an industrial village, sort of an industrially farmed area, uh, flat as a pancake. You know, see from fields of barley for miles around, and all I remember all I remember doing is being really excited about Live Aid spending the day sat in our front room. I think my sister was upstairs because she was poorly. So she was watching Spandau Ballet from her bed with a bottle of Lucasade and a comic, a, well, a copy of Smash It's probably. And I would have been sat downstairs with my mum. And I think we watched pretty much all of the, uh, the BBC, BBC Two, by the way, broadcast. It wasn't on BBC One, I've just found out. And just watched pretty much all of it, probably dipped in and out. I wasn't a huge Brian Ferry fan and like the very sophisticated Simon G there who who was probably (laughs) on, by this time was on to Phil Manzarek solo albums. So I was a bit (laughs) nonplussed with some of it, but I think I pretty much watched on that beautiful sunny afternoon, the whole thing from from right up until, uh, you know, the the chorus of uh, Feed the World. And I think I uh, probably dipped out when we got onto sort of, you know, the USA stuff later on, like most people. Yeah. So that's, That's what I was doing then. So who were you looking forward to seeing on the day? I'll tell you, because I remember this vividly. I was quite excited to see Tears for Fears because I'd quite liked the last couple of singles. Was it Round Songs from the Big Chair, this sort of time? Yes. I can't remember. Anyway, I remember hearing them on the radio and I remember thinking, oh, that'll be good. I'd like to see them. I'd like to sort of see them you know, in action and see how they sound live. I was hoping Frankie Goes to Hollywood might put in an appearance because I'd always wondered what, what it might be like to see them performing, and uh, neither of those showed up. Instead, I think instead of Tears for of Fears, because they were a last-minute cancellation, uh, we got to see George Thorogood and the Destroyers live from Philadelphia. And <laughs> you know, I think everyone can hand on heart say they remember the you know the day and the minute and exactly what they were doing when uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers you know basically bossed Live Aid yeah. completely. And you know, that's the abiding memory most people have of the day, isn't it? And a nation said, who? <laughs> so, yeah, Tears for Fears let me down. I've never, and I never really got into them since, really, other than the best of Tears for Fears, uh, which I've got from a charity shop.
6: So, yeah.
0: What about you, Gavin? What were you up to on the July the 13th, 1985?
6: <laughs> it's a very sad tale. Very sad tale. I have my, my diary. Saturday, July the 13th, 1985. Today was Live Aid. Went to a dog show at Malvern. <laughs> I oh. saw Auntie Sandra and Uncle Jeff. Adam Ant was on Live Aid, but I only heard him on the radio. And therein just, you know, lies a whole sad tale, really. So I was 15, very excited because Adam Ant was going to be on. I was a massive Ant fan. And the day before Live Aid is on, on the Friday, my mum says, Oh, we're going to Malvern tomorrow. It's a dog show. Your Auntie Sandra and Uncle Jeff are coming up to uh, show their Shelties. And I was like, But it's Live Aid. I need to watch. Live- no, no, you're coming to the dog show. I was like, Mum, it's Live Aid! <laughs> but she she just didn't understand. So I got dragged to this fucking dog show. <laughs> I mean, we didn't even have any dogs. You know I mean? She just wanted to see her sister, me auntie Sandra. It was lovely. She was a great aunt. But, uh, you know, it wasn't the same as seeing Live Aid. So as concession, my mum let me take um, a radio along with me and some headphones. But, you know, that wasn't the same, was it? So I was sat in this bloody field with a load of dogs watching them being paraded around, just thinking all my mates are going to be watching. The worst thing was when I got there, my auntie Sandra and Uncle Jeff were really surprised to see me and they were like, oh, did you not want to watch Live Aid? Yeah, I did <laughs> want to watch Live Aid, my mum dragged me here. I didn't want to come They got out of it and it was their fucking dogs that had been exhibited. So, yeah, I've was, was still not really forgiven my mum, you know. Uh, I've not been to see her during lockdown. No, that's not true. (laughs) But, but yeah, it's still... So that that short diary entry, you know, that kind of covers a host of disappointment, regret and tears, you know. Terse, I think we can call it. Yeah, Yeah, very terse. Um, When I got back, I just had to make do with watching... Because I think by the time we got back, it was just the American stuff, which I wasn't really asked about, you know. All I really wanted was to see uh, Adamant. David Bowie would have been enjoyable, you know, but... I, I think I just came in at George Sarkin and the Destroyers. <laughs> so uh yeah, very, very disappointing. Yeah, still rankle. I don't know if it comes across, but it still rankles a little.
0: <laughs> what about
6: you, Say? Si? What were you doing?
0: Well, I'd spent that morning going through the, the newspaper, we got the the Sheffield Star delivered and it was the the weekend edition, it had the T V guide in it, and they had a breakdown of everybody that was gonna be playing throughout the day and the times that they were going to be on and I decided that I was going to tape some of it and I was looking through, trying to decide what to record and because and, you know, obviously we knew about this, it had been built up for a few weeks there had been a big thing about it in, in Smash Hits in, in the issue before saying how it was going to be technically achieved and the sorts of people that were going to be playing and stuff and I was a big David Bowie fan, big Roxy Music fan so absolutely looking forward to Bowie and Brian Ferry. And as we approached midday, I just couldn't decide, just couldn't decide what I what was going to tape. So instead, I, I just rifled around my bedroom and found every blank tape that, that I could possibly lay my hands on and decided that I was just going to tape the whole lot, start to finish, just put those tapes in and press record and, and just let it record whatever happened. But that meant that I was up in my bedroom which is where the, the, the good hi-fi was. For some reason, I'd ended up with my brother's really nifty JVC separate system in my bedroom. Um, well, I know what the reason was. He lived in a, in a dodgy flat, <laughs> in, a, in a dodgy part of Sheffield. Never a grade two listed building, but, you know, that's another story. So I ended up watching Live Aid on a little black-and-white portable television in my bedroom pretty much all day, listening to it in a wonderful VHF stereo on Radio 1 and taping it all. We didn't have a video recorder, so so I was re- just recording it all for the radio, and this issue of Smash Hits when when this came out, uh, because I listened to those uh, tapes rather a lot, I'd read that Smash Hits along with it. So that that was my version of having a video recorder. Was reading along the Smash It's whilst I was listening to my tapes of you know Richard Skinner reading out the the, the phone numbers and <laughs> and bank addresses and things like that, <laughs> and then you know I kept turning those tapes and putting the new tapes in, and then at some point I fell asleep, probably around about two a.m. If you know, if if you look at the tapes and, and where it gets up to, and unbeknownst to me, whilst uh, after I'd nodded off, somebody came in and switched off the stereo and the tape recorder and switched off the telly. So my tapes stop at Duran Duran partway through uh, union of the snake. And from that point on, uh, I didn't see any of it because I was fast asleep until there was a thunderstorm that woke me up and I saw the last few minutes or a little bit of Bob Dylan. And then all, all the congregated masses of Philadelphia singing, we are the world. Yeah. And, only yesterday have I seen and heard that missing kind of two to three hours that I missed back in 85. So I've seen, now I've seen the whole of Duran Duran, and I've seen Patty LaBelle and Black Sabbath. Who, who knew Black Sabbath? I never even knew Black Sabbath played at Live Aid. And Hall and Oaks. Man, that was a Ooh. set. They were really good. And uh, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. So I was aware that these people played, but never seen or heard any of that before, despite owning the official DVDs as well. Never made it that far in <laughs> the official DVDs. Um, but nobody, nobody confessed to coming in and switching off the stereo and the, and the telly after I'd nodded off. No one would mm-hmm. own up to it. They, They, they mm-hmm. kind of... Made it sound as though I'd done it in my sleep, that I'd done that myself. You would never have done that, Cy, si, would you? I know, yeah, you would never no, have, done have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I mean, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Gaslighting a 12-year-old. What's, what's all that <laughs> about?
1: You reached out in horror and uh, when Simon, when, uh, Simon Le Bon hit that really bum note, during, uh, is it View to a Kill? View to a Kill, yeah. He goes, ah, slammed it off, yeah. yeah. Did you get that bit?
0: I got that bit, yeah. I used to rewind that bit and listen to it over and over again because it's such a <laughs> it's such a moment. That isn't it? It's All we need. <laughs> Gav, I feel a little bit a little bit guilty now that we're talking about this and and you missed out. I mean, I'm guessing you saw, you've seen highlights and stuff since. I've
6: seen bits, but. To be honest, I was kind of emotionally traumatised by the experience, so it's still quite hard for me to watch it. It sounds ridiculous as a 50-year-old <laughs> man 35 years later, but it's still kind of like the one that got away a little bit for me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I should have been there watching it, and I couldn't because of my my mother that just didn't understand. and and you know, and I, I wasn't <laughs> a rebellious enough teenager just to go, well, F you, Mum, I'm not coming anywhere, you can't make me. You know, I'd never dreamed of doing that, so I just had to do what my mum said, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I've I've seen bits. I've seen bits.
1: Well, this will be cathartic experience for you, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I'm
6: not sure, <laughs>
0: So we will dive into that issue of Smash Hits now. Um, Bob Geldof on the front, fist in the air. He did it. Live Aid, one day that shook the world. Plus Adamant, Phil Oakey, Spandau Ballet, Bruce Springsteen, Fizz, Bill Lewis. And when you turn the page and and open up Smash Hits, Live Aid dominates about the first 10 or so pages of this. And actually, the first thing you see in the magazine is not a pop star. It's not anybody on stage at Live Aid. It's the crowd at Wembley, that 72,000-strong crowd that that filled the stadium that day. And the first people that are spoken to in the feature as well are punters. We'll get to them in a minute, but it was kind of like a a cast of thousands that, that put this piece together. One of those people being William Shaw, and so I dropped him a line to see what he remembers of the day and of uh, working on this issue. And, uh, and and he sent me this, this email back. Um, he said, I was designated to be in the crowd all day. This was pre-mobile phones, so I had to find phone boxes to call in copy, and they were really scarce and busy. There were people everywhere, backstage and all around. Lots of the best copy was, as it turned out, written by Tom Hibbert, who was watching it on the telly. About 2% of what I found in was used because there was so much stuff going on. It was also a pretty bold thing to do. Our cover date was four days after Live Aid. Technically, it was insanely challenging to get that issue out and distributed in that time. But it says a lot about the insane kind of ambition that was growing in Smash It's at the time. To do things not just at the edge of culture, but right at the centre of it. And it also says a lot about the way we were engaged with print technology at the time. Colour magazines would normally go to bed long before they paid on the shelves but pop had to be current and i see i also interviewed the redskins who knew <laughs> <laughs> so we get those fans, um, first of all, Maggot, Phil, Brian and Baggy from Chelmsford, <laughs> all dressed uh, in uh, denim waistcoats and studded, are they bracelets? I don't know what you call them. And Those kind of wristband things, aren't they? Yeah, studded wristbands, I think. Who have they come to see? Well, status quo, of course. <laughs> And, uh, and then there's another bunch of punters there as well. Uh, Nick from Gerrard's Cross, we got up at seven to be here in time and ended up missing two trains. So there was nothing to do but crack it open the beer. He's arrived with Lynn and Rod, also from Chelmsford, whose dad ended up queuing for five hours to get their tickets. So I think it's telling that it's that shot of the crowd that we see first, and also they speak to the punters first before we even get to any of the pop stars.
1: Which... Well, they they were the stars of the show. They were the stars of the show. My, the one thing that I remember, we were all astonished by when watching it. Bear in mind, this is long before you ever saw footage of Glastonbury. You know, rolling footage every time there's a Glastonbury or Reading Festival. You didn't see huge crowds filling Wembley like that on, te- on live on television. You know, and they made the day. You know, we're doing doing the overhead hand claps, and it was all about the crowd, really, wasn't it? They they were the stars, and I remember this. I remember being really excited about the fact. I do remember that this seemed to have been turned around really quickly and when smash hits arrived it was like they've got a whole report on live aid already and there's a timeline and who doesn't like a timeline and all these little, I remember all these <laughs> little pictures and every time you see to this day if you pick up a magazine and there's an overview of live aid it's always timeline and they've got the clock and it's and the documentary which was mm-hmm. on remember and it starts with the countdown clock and it's always about that tension of is this thing actually going to happen
0: Kind of captured there. Yeah, I think I think you're right about the, the audience, the crowd that were there. But the other thing is, like I say, we'd never seen that sort of thing live on telly before. Nobody was telling her, them how to act. Nobody was telling them how to respond or behave on that day. It was all just kind of spontaneous. It was all just happening. Like I say, we hadn't seen anything like that before, so they didn't know. They weren't copying behaviour. It was all just... Mm. There and happening on the day, and that moment in Radio Gaga, when you see um, all the crowd doing, you know, the the, the clapping thing above the heads, like like we'd all seen in the video of the year before that was just you know I remember um, hearing my mom and my brother from downstairs going wow <laughs> <laughs> and even on my little black and white portable telly that that just looked amazing and you just felt like that this crowd was just yeah absolutely carrying the day yeah that's that's
6: a good point you make about people not having a, a set kind of way of behaving and they were just responding as just punters without that kind of because you know like now when when Glastonbury's on people have like this festival wear now isn't there and there's things that you do at a festival you know but then it was just a big pop concert it was the first one I guess of that size it was going to be on telly and and so there was no prescriptive kind of um, set of behavior or that you know there wasn't a certain way to do things it was just spontaneous and you know and I think that's a beautiful thing about it you wouldn't
0: be able to say it for flags now would you
6: Exactly, yeah, right.
0: (laughs) What's good in this is that there are a few quotes from some of the people who played at Live Aid, so obviously being grabbed backstage either before or um, after they went on. And uh, they have a little chat with uh, Francis Rossi. He says, uh, I never used to like Bob Geldof at all. I thought he was a bit of a loudmouth, but now he seems really nice and pleasant. (laughs) I wanted to talk about
6: Paul Weller as well because uh, yeah. we did the uh, the Band-Aid one a while ago and there was a little interview with him during the recording of Do They Know It's Christmas and he was talking about kind of being on his own and not really mingling too much with the other pop stars. And it's the same thing again here. He says there's no one backstage I particularly want to meet. I can't talk to those people. But and then what's interesting as well is he talks about setting up a musician's union to get uh, people involved sort of in the political side of things which I guess is probably looking at the timeline was perhaps the sort of seed of an idea for Red Wedge.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's talking about
6: maybe meeting up and, you know, um, getting more political. So he's not made himself any more popular in the months since uh, Band-Aid, has he? With his fellow pop stars.
0: No, no. I mean, it, it, their set on the day really won me round. Re- really sort of, you know, turned me on to the Style Council. Obviously, I was aware of, of Paul Weller and the Style Council, but after that, you know, I was, started buying all their mm. records and it was purely down to that performance. Um, so, Gav, just talking about Adam Ant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> does it make it any better <laughs> that it just went on and did what, well, I mean, did 35 years on, and this is the one thing, one of the things that people still talk about, that he went on and you know, out of all the sing- songs that he could have sung, you know, some of the, some of the um, Ants classics or maybe even something like Goody Two Shoes, he goes on and performs his brand spanking new single that wasn't, I don't think it was even in the charts yet, just gets that one song, that's it, on and off, vive la rock.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think he gets a bad a bad rap, a bad ant rap, if you will. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's yeah, I got a bit of a beam up on it about this, actually, because, I, you know, I do think he's been unfairly criticised. I think initially he was due to do three or four songs and it kind of kept as more sort of big names like Bowie and so on got added to the list. His set got shorter and shorter until at the end, Geldof just told him he just wanted one song. And at the time, you know, what we've got to remember is a lot of the other acts were doing like bad is an album track. um, uh, And boomtown rats and, drag me down, which had only got to number fifty the year before. You know, <laughs> well, m- most of
0: most of Brian Ferry's set was uh, from the new album, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, Brian Ferry did uh, did three tracks from his new album. Admittedly, one of them a top ten single, and the album had been at number one the month before. And then he did Jealous Guy, but we'll get onto the uh, the wasted opportunity <laughs> of Mr. Ferry in, in a short while. But yeah, um, Status Quo did an al- album track. Um, the Style Council did an album track. Spandau did exactly, and you know, the, so I mean, what,
6: what I was going to to say was that sort of nostalgia thing of you just come on and you do your big hits i mean you know well it didn't do any jam songs whatever you know it it didn't really exist then i don't think there was that same expectation on people and it's only now looking back that people criticize him for doing his new single i mean it wasn't like a ballad you know it was a maybe not his finest song but it's not a terrible song you know it's not not
0: at all and
6: it's a nice message you know viva la rock because the day was about music and and positivity and so it's got that element to it as well. So I really think he's um, he's kind of suffered a bit of revisionism, you know, over the years. And the fact that, because, you know, you think, well, some people, if they were told at the end, oh, you can only do one song, they might just go, oh, I'm not doing it then, you know, see you later, mate. But he still went and did it. And it was one of the most energetic performances out of everyone. I mean, he could barely sing by, <laughs> by like the <laughs> third verse, poor lad, you know. He was really, if you watch it now, you think, no, he's really going for it.
0: So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm here to defend the ant, you know. But even the caption in uh, Smasher, it says, uh, some of the crowd don't seem to recognize the revamped ant. Who the hell's that? shouts a perplexed onlooker.
6: Well, I, I mean, you know, three years before he was the biggest thing ever. It just showed how quickly the pop world was turning at that time. You know, it was a couple of years after your heyday, you were, you were virtually unknown. You were, you know, he was pretty close to the edge of Le Dumper at, at that stage, wasn't he, really? He was peering over the edge of the Dumper,
1: <laughs> reaching down. And Bluster Blood Vessel was in there trying to pull him in. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think that was probably what Sir Bob was thinking at the time when he was, when he was hacking the uh, set list down and sort of insisting that uh, Ant only had one number. I think he had him there under sufferance as well. I don't think Bob wanted him there at all. Bear in mind, it's two years since he'd had a sort of, I think Pussy in Boots was the last big hit of Top Ten, I thing. Mm. From what I understand, Miles Copeland was Adamant's manager at the time. And he was also Sting's manager. Yeah. And the message was, no ant, no Sting, which I think is rather well <laughs> that, yeah, nice. That's, yeah, that's true. I'd forgotten about that bit, actually. Yeah, I had read that. But like you say, if he'd had a chance to do a couple of songs, if he'd had a chance to do a couple of numbers and one that people knew, but given the way that he was, the amount of energy he was putting into the performance, who knows? We
6: could have been talking
1: about a comeback of Adam Ant rather than uh, Queen, right?
6: Yeah, I think you're right, Tim. I, I think it could, have, it could have gone another way. He could have had one more song, but there we go. He should have held out
1: a big sort of swag bag with Live Aid written on it and demanded people throw money in it and sing Stand and Deliver. Like, to get, them to th- <laughs> yes. get them to throw wadges of cash into the bag. That would have been brilliant. Money all your life. Perfect.
3: My name is Lynn Lockwood and I was 14 uh, on the day of Live Aid and I was living in Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire attending a rather posh all-girls school just kind of getting into music and uh, I definitely watched the whole of Live Aid in our front room sat two inches away from the telly and I just kind of imagined my mum and my stepdad and my stepsister coming in and out and trying to prise me away from the telly and not really managing So I probably just sat there with the dog all day long. I have hazy memories of actually what was on that day. I have hazy impressions, but I um, definitely always had a strong memory about a man. And at that time, uh, I was just kind of coming out of my Howard Jones phase and just getting into things like The Cure and Susie and the Bunches. And so uh, I was really kind of discovering music and probably starting to get a bit snobby about it. And uh, I loved Adamant when I was 10, and he was singing Stand and Deliver. And now, four years later, you know, five years later, the grand old age of 14, I just thought he was embarrassing. It was like watching my granddad. I was completely outraged watching him. So, yeah, I, I kind of remember huffing and puffing all the way through it, and I know he got quite a lot of bad press for it anyway. However, watching it again, watching his performance again, I think it was great, and... Uh, I feel a bit sorry for Adam that we all slagged him off at the time. I thought he did a really good job and I think uh, the song Viva Rock just had a great message for the show about, you know, the importance of uh, rock and pop music. So, uh, well done, Adam. You did a good job on that day.
0: Next up on the bill, it's your local friendly mid-year with his synth-pop combo, Ultravox. the, The only thing about
1: Ultravox is that I think that's one of the best images if you think about, like, the one that's... I could bring to mind if I think about Live Aid is Midge, Majua, with his mirror shades on, it's perfectly blue sky, it's a beautiful sunny day and the audience reflected back in Midge's mirror shades whilst wearing a very, very hot looking jacket. Speaking of which, Spandau also employed the very, very hot overcoat, didn't they as well? But well, that's an yeah. abiding memory. Yeah, not the, the set isn't great. If you listen to the set, it's pretty clunky. The synths is going all going out of tune. I think they're just winging it a bit on the, the technical front. But hey, you know.
0: Well, Gary Kemp, who's got a, a very. Bright orange blouse on, basically. Completely unbuttoned and, and smash it. So I have a quick chat with him. It went very quickly. The greatest moment of my life. And it just flashed by. I can't believe they're just wheeling the bands on and off. Normally, you come off stage and loads of people are giving you towels and drinks and things. I fell off the stage and nobody gave a toss. <laughs> and it says, uh, 1405,
1: Spandau Ballet retired to the backstage area for a few glasses of rock and roll mouthwash. <laughs> Which is a, a Smash It's classic,
0: isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Nick Kershaw, I've been digging around a bit because he says after he, said, he tells Smash It, so I didn't enjoy it really. It was a bit fraught, a lot more so than supporting Elton John last year because he also supported Elton John at Wembley Stadium. Is there anyone I'd like to meet backstage? Yeah, Sherry, my wife. So I did a bit of digging on this because principally, I was looking for a particular photo of Nick Kershaw during his set at Live Aid that I've got in a a Live Aid souvenir that I bought from Asda a few weeks later that I cannot find anywhere. I've spent hours in the loft (laughs) this morning and go through the Galloway archive, which was a a box in in the wardrobe with all like loads of memorabilia and stuff like that. I found my handwritten notes for the tapes of Live Aid and little cuttings out and all sorts of things. Could not find this souvenir, but there's a, a photo in there of Nick Kershaw on stage we all know is a, you know, a rather short chap, but he looks like he's lost in a forest of mic stands that are all kind of towering above him. There's uh, <laughs> just this, this little, little Nick Kershaw, and then all these big mic stands. I can't find it anywhere. I, I, one of these, <laughs> when, when I find it, I will share it. But yeah, so in searching for this, I found an interview that he did with a Suffolk newspaper who were talking to, uh, it's like an anniversary piece, talking to Stars of Suffolk who appeared at Live Aid. There's more than you'd think. And basically, he got the fear big time. And uh, and I think he was just absolutely bricking it, basically on the verge of having a panic attack for pretty much his, his entire set, forgetting the words and, and just really anxious about the whole thing. So, yeah, it just completely got the fear. And still, when he talks about it now... It is drenched with all this terror that was coursing through his veins on that day, and he just cannot... The, the poor guy's traumatised. Ne- I think he needs a bit of therapy about it, to be honest.
6: <laughs> I bet he wished he'd gone to a
0: dog show instead, eh? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. Not th- This is the thing about a lot of the bands, A lot of, the, especially the pop groups, Nick Kershaw is probably normally playing at the Cliffs Pavilion South End or, you know, Bath Moles Club or, you know, Cambridge Corn Exchange. They don't... Paul Young had never played a stadium in his life. The biggest venue most of these groups would have played was somewhere someone like the Manchester Apollo. And there they are in front of 72,000 people. I can understand them being a little bit nervous and also not really having that in their arsenal of t- sort of stagecraft the ability to know how to put themselves across to a crowd of that size. I doubt Mr. Ant mm. and all the rest of them really knew how to do the stadium rock thing, which is why as soon as Bobo and Freddie Mercury get on stage, the crowd are in the palm of their hands because those guys have played in armadomes Domes before. But the rest of them, poor Young's never stood and looked at <laughs> that number of people and rocked out. <laughs> Weller looks nervous, you know, I mean, they all look a bit, not surprised. And there's only one billion people watching on the telly, so don't yeah. worry. Yeah.
0: But Nick Kershaw, uh, one of my um, favourite awful moments of Live Aid, is during the the riddle, and it gets to the instrumental break in the riddle, and he invites the whole of Wembley Stadium. And he says this: "I want to see you whistle," <laughs> and then, then he starts. He starts like he purses his lips and starts, like, whistling, showing uh, in Wembley Stadium how to whistle. And then the camera, luckily, cuts away from him. But, my God, I want to see you whistle.
7: <laughs> Come on, Wembley,
0: let's whistle. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, Smash, it's right to point out that it's um, that the Spans that they get the first excited screams of the day. So they were the first proper, like, pin-ups of the day that were playing at Wembley. And everybody gets a, a li- little bit excited for them. The one thing they got wrong, if you watch it back, and yes, for
1: listeners, I have sat through quite a lot of Spandau Ballet <laughs> on Live Aid recently, is they do the slow numbers, but they speed them up to a ludicrous degree. Um, so True, which is a, this lovely slow ballad, is like, so true, funny hair with these, it's almost like a like a stomper. They just speed it right up, I guess it's because they want to get more songs into the set and because maybe they're worried that the audience will be Turned off by a slow number completely missing the point that it's a hot sunny day and what do people like doing in stadiums if they if they're not jumping and singing they like a sway with their arms in the air and they want to they want to <laughs> gl- glide from side to side which is which is exactly what you would do to uh, true the other big mistake they made was playing a track called virgin which was an album track i'm not sure they, it hadn't even been released at that point yeah, A brand new song yeah. that
0: didn't come out until the following year and it
1: didn't play gold and Hadley to this day has regretted that they didn't play gold, yeah.
0: So I thought it'd be interesting to get some behind-the-scenes perspectives from the day, lift the curtain on Live Aid, if you will. And I had a little chat with TV director David G. Croft, who was one of three BBC directors who were responsible for what we saw on our TV screens that day.
8: My memory's a bit hazy, I know that I directed Spandau Ballet, Sade, Elvis Costello, uh, definitely the Bowie and the Who. Um, we were doing what's called, it's busking it, so we had no scripts, no pre-prepared script. We knew where our cameras were, we'd learnt the music, you call the shots live. And I was also vision mixing, so I was doing my own cutting. So I was calling the shots, cutting to that camera, calling the next shot, cutting to that camera. So Spandau Ballet starts, off we go. And the senior cameraman came over, talked back and said, David, why are you shouting? And I said, I'm really sorry. And it was just my nerves. And I was okay after that. I was okay after that. We were an outside broadcast unit or an OB. So basically, an OB is a television studio in trucks. So I'm sitting in a truck. The sound guys are in a separate truck. And there's another truck because they were going to record. Even though we were going out live, they were still going to record it. So there was another truck for that. I think during the day, it began to dawn on me that, you know, it was a bigger concert than I thought. You know, I mean, at one point, Bob Geldof went, was on the air and said a billion people watching. And I thought, OK, that's not going to make me feel... That's making me feel nervous now, Bob. That um, a billion people are watching. And if I don't do this particularly well, but I think all the directors, uh, the whole production team acquitted itself brilliantly, given how quickly it was pulled together. You know, in fact, fantastic work by all of the BBC people that were involved in it. It was um, a fantastic effort. The two big bands I think that I remember doing were David Bowie and The Who. Um, And I was really looking forward to doing that. The Who's performance, quite famous, because that's when we had a blackout. The mains went, you know, the giant fuse at Wembley blew. So I'm sitting here going, what the hell is going on? And I don't know, suddenly all the screens came back up again. It all fired back up again, and you just have to carry on, and that's what we did. But a very scary moment for everybody. There is one piece that I watch that I directed that gives me a tingle. It's David Bowie doing um, TVC 15 The hair's on the back of my neck stand up. It's also a good example about, of how when you're a, a director at a live concert, you've got to be prepared for anything because he jumped down into the camera pit. I didn't know he was going to do that. Neither <laughs> did the cameraman. <laughs> what does it mean to me? Um, I think... I'm very lucky to have been involved in a show like Live Aid that does have a lasting cultural legacy. So for me, you know, I am fantastically proud of being associated with a program that people still want to talk about. And I think the other thing that's important is it captured, it's a snapshot of the immense rock and pop talent that was around at that time in the United Kingdom.
0: So then we hit the kind of the mid-afternoon lull. The the heat, it's getting hotter in Wembley Stadium. And uh, we we get Sade, Sting, Phil Collins, Howard Jones, all just kind of drifting by on the telly at 1452 in Smashers, they point out it is now announced that one and a half billion people around the world are watching Live Aid, but how many of them have ever heard of Dennis Waterman or Rula Lenska, who are now being interviewed on TV backstage? One <laughs> wonders. Five. Yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> I watched Sharda back, which hmm. I don't remember watching at the
1: time, or I wasn't paying that much attention midway through the crowd to suddenly give a massive cheer. And I think it's just cause she's taking her jacket off and she's got kinda of nice backless dress on and they're just they just going mad for that. So anybody watching that will be thinking, Right, whatever you do, just get just do something, just do something exciting. Even if it's just chucking your jacket off or just throw some shapes, uh there's no good just going on and just doing your song and getting off again. So even Sade's getting a without that very sort of slow and lullful set, she's got
0: a few rock tricks up her sleeve as well. Sixteen oh seven. Brian Ferry trots onto the boards, looking as spruce and dapper as ever, and proceeds to wake up a doze in Wembley with his newly formed backing band, which appears to consist of about seven million musicians, (laughs) one of which uh, was David Gilmour of The Pink Floyd, which I wasn't aware of at the time. But, yeah, Brian Ferry's set, I think, was another kind of great missed opportunity. At the time, I loved it. I hadn't heard his new album, A New Slave to Love, he did that, but he also did two rather gloomy songs, from the his latest album that day, that kind of, when you look back on it now, it just sort of flattens the atmosphere a little bit. And when you think of all the songs that he kind of got at his disposal and what he could have done and how it could have actually transformed his career a little bit. So it's a discussion that I've had with fellow Brian Ferry and Roxy Music fans over the years, and it crops up from time to time. So I posted that discussion once again yesterday on Facebook just to, just to get the opinion of, of people, because I've got my thoughts about what he should have done. I just thought it'd be interesting to, to see what other people thought. Now, I, I think, had he gone on and done Slave to Love, fair enough, recent hit, got in the top ten, great tune, it's from his new album, ticks all the boxes there, Jealous Guy, which he did do, number one song, Everybody knows it. Everybody can whistle along like Nick Kershaw wanted them to do. Great. But then the other two songs, if only he had done something like Dance Away and Let's Stick Together. And I think it would have given his career quite a big boost as it is. He sort of floundered for, for many years from, from the mid-80s to the late 90s, just sort of drifting about just, uh, and, and being, <laughs> being Brian Ferry.
1: Well, it gives the lie to that thing that Geldof insisted that he told all the bands, you must play the hits.
0: Yeah. Wasn't a few technical problems as well with it. Oh, yeah, apparently the drummer broke the skin on his snare drum with the first hit. Dave Gilmore's guitar wasn't working for the, the first song. Brian Ferry's mic conked out, so ended up being given two mics. I don't know why they gave him two mics if one wasn't working. Why didn't they just give him one that was working? So for for his set, he's kind of singing into into two microphones and just sort of like you know just sort of drifting about the stage and stuff. But on on that Facebook discussion, my friend Chris, massive Roxy and Ferry fan, said, "Well, yeah, it didn't do his um, sales any harm." But if you look at the album charts over the next few weeks, there's, there must be at least half a dozen, maybe even up to like you know, eight or ten acts, whose albums all subsequently went up in the weeks after Live Aid. Now, Ferry's album did eventually go back up in, in October, but took a long while. Whilst it didn't have any negative effects on his sales figures... It didn't have any positive ones either. It didn't catapult him into the charts like U2 and and Queen and Madonna. But my friend Jocelyn was actually at Wembley on that day and she, she said, I was there and Ferry's set bombed more than most acts. He saw it as an opportunity to launch his new album and be showcased across the US. Massive faux pas. The savvy artists made the most of their limited time slot. Queen were phenomenal and I didn't even like Queen. So that's, uh, that's what my friend Jocelyn says about that. Now, Tim, you were saying that, that Paul Young hadn't played uh, a big venue like that before, but it doesn't really show in his performance. I think, I remember that, um, I haven't watched it for a long time, but I remember it from the day as being quite impressive. You know, Paul Young's quite a tall fella. He'd got his mullet going on and giving it all his uh, soul boy thing. I thought he came across really well. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly
1: going for it. Like you say, it doesn't show. I suppose he's, he's still, in a sense, performing what you would normally do in front of the Manchester Apollo rather than the Wembley, and whether that reaches to the back of the venue or not, I don't know. But he was probably one of the biggest stars at the time in terms of pop, and he was at his absolute peak. So yeah, he's going for it. He made the best of it, didn't he? The other thing that reminds me of as well is that the, the narrative—we can, if we can be a bit enemy for a bit—the narrative about Live Aid is that it heralded the new era of rockism and a return to retro rock, and you know, the old guard came. Fighting back to get rid of all the, you know, this pop filth that we've been throwing at the kids. Um, but, but actually, if you look at the lineup, then the reason I was excited about it when I was watching it at the time was there are all the pop stars du jour. There's Duran, there's Spandau, there's Howard Jones, there's Nick Kershaw, there's Paul Young. These are all the people that have been on the cover of Smash Hits, and we were we were looking forward to seeing them. So it was a mixture of the two. The idea that that was the end of pop is is a bit of a fallacy, albeit. You know, Howard Jones was probably his last huge hurrah, and, you know, we didn't hear a huge amount from uh, poor old Nick Kershaw after The Riddle. Uh,
6: but that's, that's just pop, it's a pop concert. Tim mentioned the enemy there, and, and it reminded me I took out this old um, issue of Word from Ooh. 2004, and it's like a live Aid special. Obviously, uh, Mark Ellen and Dave Hepworth were part of the Word, and, and they were very involved on the day. Uh, so there's a big special, and there's a little article by Paul Denoyer, who at the time was working for the NME, and he was just talking about the NME, and and I read his little piece. It was quite interesting. It was the last – so him going to Wembley to do a report on Live Aid was the last piece he filed for them. And uh, and this is quite interesting, he, So the last few paragraphs. He says, the following week the NME carried my report. On the cover was one of David Bailey's stark black-and-white photos of an afflicted African child. I thought that was a brave sort of gesture for a music paper, though the motive might have been a self-righteous way of denying more publicity to the pop stars. At any rate, the rest of the coverage was grudging. I was given a single page. The same space went to an anti-capitalist critique of overseas aid, and a third page went to a journalist who simply watched the show on TV. His stern verdict? I didn't like what I saw. On some intuitive level, I think the people at the enemy disliked Live Aid because it symbolised the death of rock as a rebel subculture, our music belonged to Fleet Street now, to children and to pensioners, even to the royal family. It believed in God' causes, not in the apocalypse. It surrendered its leather jackets for some nice casual togs and became not a way of life, but one more consumer choice. A part of me could mourn that too. Rock and roll mattered, but as those terrifying images of dying babies showed us, some things mattered even more. Powerful stuff. It, 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 it is powerful <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he was saying that the uh, enemy... The beforehand had been quite sniffy about it because it was at that time they were sort of quite left wing and and generally uh, not in favour of charity much like the Redskins who we'll come on to later I'm sure but they were coming from a similar kind of political position and uh, yeah just interesting you know the the amount of coverage comparing the coverage that was in Smash It's a very short time later where they gave pages and pages and pages to the event and the fact that Paul Denoyer was there and got a single page And that was it. And then the other page was a critique of it. So yeah.
1: But to be fair, there are little voices of dissent, even this in addition to Smash It's, aren't there? And obviously they're hundred percent behind it. But yeah, again, like I say we're going to read about the Redskins later, and they're not afraid to sort of put the other argument. So it's good that that's there, isn't it? Because I mean, we're not. We're not let's not get into the political ramifications of the whole thing because it's shaky ground. But like, yeah, um, yeah, they, they do. They do at least acknowledge that. And I think there was quite a few people came out and said, yeah, actually, no, we're not. This isn't quite the 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 right solution.
0: Yeah, Hugh Lewis in the news were one of the uh, one of the doubters, believe it or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they yeah he he pulled out and he was he didn't like the the whole. I can't remember the quote, but yeah, he was he was pretty matter of fact about. it. He didn't think charity was the the right answer to this.
0: Hugh Lewis in the news, kids yeah and he said we don 't know where where the money 's going, whether it 's going to go, go to the right people uh, i don 't think this is the, the the right way to be to be dealing with it yeah mm. um, well after we 've heard from someone who was at the enemy let 's get the view from its main rival melody maker, um, future Smash its editor and previous guest on the carousel. Barry McCney was the maker 's man on the ground at Wembley that day.
7: I would probably have been twenty four or twenty five uh, and most of the other members of the Melody Maker staff. I was the junior cub new boy. Most of them would have been in their early 30s, mid-30s, married, some of them. Some of them would even have had children. So when when they were looking for somebody to go to Wembley Stadium on a Saturday, on what was forecast to be a very hot day, there was nobody that interested. They would much rather have you know stayed at home. Whereas for me, I, I, you know, I was only two years out of Belfast having been working in the public library system. So the idea of going and sitting in the sunshine, watching Adam and the Ants and maybe the Style Council and whoever else might be promised was a very attractive idea and I had nothing else to do. Uh, I was, I didn't do it my own, I should say. I was with the late, great Carol Clerk. Funnily enough, Carol was from Belfast as well. So weirdly enough, you have these two people from Belfast, both working in the Multimaker. So off I went with no real sense of expectation that this is going to be history in the making. And I do remember, you know, getting there and it's very hot and just thinking, God, it's actually starting to realise it's quite a big deal, you know. And you, of course, you had that memorable, brilliant opening 10 minutes when the Quo come on and do Rocking all over the world, you know, which is just... So perfect. I mean, you know, I wouldn't say there are that many status quo fans there. I wouldn't classify myself as a a member of the quo army, but everybody likes that song and everybody likes three minutes of status quo. And off we go from there, you know, and of course it starts to become incredibly exciting. To some extent, whilst it was brilliant to have been there and to be able to say, I mean, now it's like having been at the Great Exhibition or something, you know, of 1951. But but although that was thrilling, you also realise, and this has become even truer over the years with other events, that actually watching it on TV has its advantages because you were able to see the context and, and, and the Geldof Hepworth Tom and the famous, you know, very moving clip from from Africa and Billy Connolly crying and the act, you know, the sense of a global chip box and the world um, watching, you didn't really get that. You know, I was just more, I'm at Wembley and there's a gig on. And it was hard to, to comprehend the scale of it, even while you were there. It was only really over the next few days that it became apparent. And I think my favourite bits were probably Bowie, obviously, um U2, I mean, it's gone down in history, hasn't it? It was the, it was the moment that U2 arrived. And of course, you know, I, I would spend some time in the U2 camp back in those days because I knew them from Belfast and Dublin and I interviewed them a number of times. And in the U2 camp, they felt it had been a disaster because they had done that sort of 12-minute version of BAD Bollywood got carried away, as he tends to do, you know. They were an emerging act at that point, but you know, I think that was the point at which they really crossed over. So I've loved you too. George Michael, you know, I always loved George Michael, which was probably a prelude to my smash hits period. And he just he just seemed, felt like a class of balls, you know, his vocals and the way he did it. And of course, Queen. I just remember thinking, wow, I didn't realise I liked Queen so much. Because Queen, Queen, again, has now become history from the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, uh, although slightly exaggerated, I'm sure, really worked at it, you know, and had had the greatest hits down to a 13-minute fine art. And I don't know if everyone else did that. You know, everybody else had looked a little bit more sort of slapdash and, you know, they had to play their latest hit, you know. Nobody wants to hear your latest hit. They want to hear the classics, you know. It was an interesting, it was an interesting collision, because you had you had acts that Melody Maker would have been very keen on on, on putting on their cover. Um, you two, Bowie although Bowie was going through a strange career path at the time, sort of post Let's Dance, pre Tin Machine. We wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had Wham, you wouldn't have had Spanda, you wouldn't have had Duran Duran. I mean, it was probably. More of a smash hits lineup than a melody maker lineup, but because of the scale of the event, you couldn't have not put it on the cover. Whatever magazine you were, whatever your natural constituency was, there were enough acts that, that your audience did love, like Dylan or whoever, for people to want to know what had happened. You, you would have looked insane if you just sort of had pretended it hadn't happened, but Carolyn and I, on the logistics of it. There's a Saturday. The Melody Maker comes out on a Tuesday. You know, you can't come out the following Tuesday; it's too late. So, of course, there's no internet. There's no instant phone. So, you, if you're out on a Tuesday, you're going to have the first, along with the NME, big kind of in-depth magazine account of this historic day. But if you're if you're not leaving Wembley Stadium till midnight on the Saturday night, and you're going to be in the shops on a Tuesday. You've got, a, you've got a very narrow window. And my memory of it is that Carol and I, I think, went straight. I think we went straight to Carol's house and fueled by coffee and other maybe slightly less legal substances and alcohol. <laughs> we somehow or other managed, you know, hey, I was a young man at the time. And I think it was at that point we started to realise something very special was going on here it became apparent that this was way more than just a bunch of acts on a stage, that it had been the largest television audience in the world ever, whatever, And it changed music, I think, forever. I think, you know, the ba- there's a, almost a dividing line, you know, before night, right after it. For stadium bands, the likes of U2, Queen it brought back into the public eye, sort of kept off going for for, for for years afterwards. And as well as life, it being an amazing you know, historical moment in, in the history of the world, on a very, very micro-selfish scale, for me also, it was a big thing because Carol and I did this eight-page special. Um, because I was under 25, I was eligible for the PPA, which is the magazine industry body, Young Journalist of the Year Feature Award or something, which I won. And it was the first thing I'd ever won, you know. And I was kind of astonished to have won it. It probably flagged up to that industry that I was this emerging writer. And, of course, within a year of life, you know, I'd gone to become editor of Smash Hits. But, yeah, I have incredibly fond memories of it. And sad memories, too, because Carol, Carol passed away a number of years ago, you know. And... Um, Obviously, there are other people you know who were there and who are no longer with us, George Michael, etc. But it's a it's a moment in history, you know, and, and one I will never forget.
0: Seventeen oh one.
6: Philadelphia. Bob Geloff <laughs> says something
0: like, uh, "Welcome to Wembley and the world, Philadelphia." Um, well, they've been going for a few hours already. But the first act that we saw from Philadelphia was uh, Brian Adams, and I think a very apposite song for kicking off what we saw of the American end with everywhere to go, the kids want to rock, which absolutely sums up the American end of Live Aid. And this is only something that's that's kind of struck me recently, is that whereas the UK end was a pop show with some rock legends who were kind of more pop rock legends, the American end was very rock you know, we've already mentioned mm-hmm. uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers, uh, but also Santana, uh, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Ario Speedwagon. Ario uh, Speedwagon, yeah. yeah people yeah. like that. So most of them were kind of on after, after 10 o'clock, after the, the, the Wembley end had finished. So what we got whilst Wembley was still happening, The Pretenders, Simple Minds, Madonna... That was good, good, solid pop stuff. But you can see that Madonna's not going down particularly well. She's getting a lot of booing. And it's a 90,000-strong crowd in, in Philadelphia at the JFK Stadium there. And they they just want their rock. And looking back on it now, like I said, I've, I've watched those last few hours of live air, and it's like, oh, God, this is so tiresome. This is so dull. <laughs> Give me the pop music. It
1: looks really shabby as well compared for some reason. If you see when they do the aerial shot as well, you can see the freeway and all the cars behind it. And it just looks sort of dirty and shabby and a bit cheap. Like they just threw it together. I was watching back the documentary. There's a documentary about it. I think for the 20th anniversary or the 25th. And it's really good. It's the two-parter and the interview, pretty much everybody, including, you know, David and Paul McCartney and everyone. And there's the, the politics and the, the, the troubles that were going on in the background, of the American leg. Uh, Bill Graham was just being a total nuisance and threatening to <laughs> sue everybody. Everybody else was threatening to sue everybody else. There was a big tussle between USA for Africa, which saw themselves as a sort of separate entity to Band-Aid and Live Aid, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the big acts, particularly the big black American acts, are not on at Philadelphia, because I think they'd sort of en masse said, nah, we're, we're not happy with the politics around this and being told what to do by some someone out of the Boomtown Rats. Um, <laughs> Could have been very different you know and there's a there's a whole you know we'll talk later about who should have been there but boy if prince and michael jackson had been on well yeah
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think bill graham had some sort of like deal or arrangement with um black sabbath or somebody and that's that's why they ended up on the bill so there was a lot of kind of back scratching and internal things uh, and reasons as to why the people who ended up on the American Bill ended up there. Yeah, you know, and maybe maybe that was the right show for America. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I wasn't an American teenager and maybe they remember it differently and saw the UK end as a load of kind of like namby-pamby Brits playing their wimpy pop music or whatever. Whereas we, yeah, you know, we get the American end. And it's all a load of like guitar chewing blokes, kind of like playing rock. rock! <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing. I have nothing against a lot of the bands, you know. I've, I own records by, by by some of those artists that played. But when it all kind of lands together in one lump, it's just oh, it's just a bit too much to take, you know. So back
4: in 1983, one of the presenters of Live Aid actually drove me to my wedding. Uh, Andy Kershaw, I knew from college days, obviously was one of the presenters, and it features greatly in his uh, autobiography the various people that he had to interview and he hadn't a clue who they were. I watched most of it. In fact, I actually recorded the whole thing on 16 hours of VHS videotape, which I've never watched. I think it's one of those things you wanted to be there, uh, but obviously with uh, two children and it was down in London, there's no way I could have been there.
6: So what were you doing on uh, on the day of Live Aid?
3: I was there. No way. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Um Well, it was actually a friend of my mum's who's um, won a competition to guess the number of balloons in the back of a car, and she won two tickets, and she didn't want to go and said, oh, your daughter's into pop music. Would she like to go? So me and a school friend went. Uh, my mum and dad drove us down. They had a day in London. We went to the uh, concert. I was into Howard Jones at the time, embarrassingly, so I was impressed to see him. And starting to get into David Bowie, and he was absolutely fantastic, because... Um, Queen I reckon stole the show Um, they were amazing Um, uh, I could see where I was sat on the other side of the arena I could see uh, Princess Di uh, dancing away can't remember much else because it was a long time ago now but that was my first big concert you know I was only 15 at the time so it was probably quite daunting walking into an arena that big
0: so there's pop kids Stephen Green and Jill Turner with their memories of the day. Although I think Stephen was a pop grown-up rather than a kid, and uh, how lucky was Jill. Uh, we move on now to one of the most remembered performances of the day, and that's "You 2 Shunday, bloody shunday, as Bono says as he comes on stage. Now, I bought the Under a Blood Red Sky live album off the back of seeing them on, on here. I'd already got a couple of the singles, but after seeing them on this, I was like, Wow these are amazing i've got to get these but the band thought that they'd absolutely bombed on the day because bono disappeared off stage for 15 minutes while whilst the rest <laughs> of the band was sort of like well we'll just keep doing this backing track and it and turns out bono's you know having a bit of a smooch with some uh or tong Sani, as it says in smash hits <laughs> with uh some of the uh the, the female attendees of live aid <laughs> But it turns out to be, uh, as it says at the end of the uh, thing here, summing up you two, they take their leave after the most uplifting performance of the day. Wow.
1: I'm really pleased also regular listeners to this podcast will be pleased to see at 1721 the mention of uh, Shimmering Shards of Sepulchral Majesty.
8: Yay!
6: (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. I mean, at, at the time, I I liked um, I liked you too, but then I think watching that just took my uh, passion for them to a new level. And I, you know, I, like you, I'd say I was really uh, really struck by them. I mean, I watched Bad again today for the first time in years, and it's still actually I found it quite emotional watching it, and it's still it still had a power. And I and I thought before I watched it, I thought I'm just going to be like rolling my eyes at this, you know, because it it's easy to dismissed Bono and because he you know he certainly wasn't a stranger to a little bit of pomposity shall we say you know but you know that gesture of going down into the audience and really trying to make that connection it was a powerful thing and and again it wasn't something I I mean maybe you'd seen Bruce do it I guess maybe that's where the inspiration had come from because I think Bruce had been doing that for a few years by that time hadn't he but still doing that live on TV and Bolting things up to that degree in a way because they were due to play Pride, weren't they? And they didn't because they'd overrun, so they had to kind of cut it short. But to me, it's still a really powerful moment and it's still kind of, it's pretty much the main image I have. Well, I've, the two main images, are, it's that, isn't it? Bonner go down into the crowd and uh, Freddie Mercury with his arm in the air and his little uh, mic stand thing, you know. But uh, it really kind of sums it up and it was that connection with the audience that really made it special.
1: Well, I think I think he, he'd already got form, Bobo, for uh, clambering over amps and <laughs> sort of hoisting himself around in the crowd at this point. So I, I think it's sort of thing, it's kind of thing he was used to doing, something spontaneous, which I think is why the band are, are geared up to just keep the groove going, you know, while he does his thing. Also, if you watch it back, there are people with extra long mic leads, almost as if they knew that he might be tempted to uh, wander off. But I don't think they realised quite how far he was going to go. And I don't think he realised quite how far he was going to have to jump down into the muddy pit <laughs> where he ends up. It's pretty, it is good, isn't it? I think the one thing I got from that which stuck with me, and I, I, did, I did sort of get into you 2 I have to admit it, after that performance, uh, and they were one of the first bands that I became a bit of a collectible, you know, I wanted to get all the singles of, right? But I don't think it was necessarily the sort of the him Christ-like beckoning the children to come unto him <laughs> at the lip of the stage. It wasn't that yeah. that stuck with me. What it was, was the sound of the hedge with the echoplex effect on the guitar doing that riff and the rest of the band just locking in. And no, unbeknownst to me, I just heard basically Crack Rock and they knew how to just keep a, a solid riff going and just go with it. And it's like, all right, it's basically Noi and uh, Can <laughs> happening whilst Bono's doing his dancing which obviously later on, I was disappointed when I heard the actual album version that it sort of cuts off, it doesn't go, I expected it to go on for 15 minutes. I was waiting for this riff to come in and we could just, you know, zone out with with uh, The Hedge. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's what I really liked about it, was to hear a band just playing a riff and playing one note for, you know, 10 minutes was, was great.
6: So, But obviously that wasn't the intention. But thank you, The Hedge. <laughs> something really made me laugh watching it as well as a bit just before he goes down before he jumps off the stage bit he kind of crouches on the monitor and almost goes ass over tea doesn't he <laughs> like a, a bit, he kneels and and he almost goes and he just catches himself because if he'd have fallen you know head first out I don't think he'd have ever got up again because it was like about <laughs> a six foot jump you know yeah. it's really funny He's trying to spread his legs in tight leather trousers. It's not a good look, but (laughs) yeah. Very sweaty in that frock coat with his mullet as well.
9: Hello, my name is Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Circuit3Music. I make synth pop music. Um, On Live Aid Day, I was almost 19. I was 19 the following month. And I was in Wembley. Um, even though I'm from Dublin and was, of course, living in Dublin at the time. I saw the, the notice for the gig and that was it. I I took a day off work. They didn't believe I was going. I had to show them the ticket. And I travelled over on the ferry from Dublin to Holyhead in Wales. We then were put onto coaches all the way down to London. My first time in London, travelled on my own brilliant experience and I tagged along with a couple of fellas who'd been to London before and knew how to get around on the tube. We walked into the stadium Just as the Royal Guard were doing the salute thing and um, just as status quo came on, I was walking down across the pitch and, and making my way up as far as I could. Because I was on my own, I didn't have to worry about anybody else and made my way up as close as I could to the front. And it was an amazing day. I remember every minute there wasn't a single artist I didn't want to see. It was, it was the perfect gig for this 18-year-old, soon-to-be 19-year-old young man. My abiding memories of the day, there's a few. The first one, I think, was early on in the day when the Boomtown Rats came on and Bob Geldof was there. And I think you have to understand that growing up in Ireland in the 70s and into the 80s, it was a difficult place to be because the economy was a, complete basket case there really weren't opportunities and we just had mass emigration and the younger people living in the country and it was a very young country we didn't have anything to hold on to and to say we were proud of we just didn't everything was second hand it came from the UK it came from America and Geldof I I remember shouting out loud something about Geldof or something because I wanted people to know I'm from the same town as this fella That was the first time I felt proud to be where I was from because there really wasn't anything else. And the reception that you 2 got really took me by surprise. We'd heard stories that they were big, you know, and they were doing things in colleges in America, doing that circuit and they were big in the UK. But that really took me by surprise. I think the Irish thing for me was, was the first big surprise and the first big memory. I think the memory that everybody who was there will talk about is, of course, Queen. I vividly remember the sea of hands during Radio Gaga. My hands are up there with everybody else's. It was it was phenomenal. And of course, when McCartney came out, that was something else. Uh, I got to see a live Beatle. I recall David Bowie being phenomenal, and I was going through a Bowie. Kick at the time, I was devouring everything, and one of the first things I did when I got back to Dublin on my next paycheck, I went out I tried to buy a suit like the one Bowie wore that day, and of course, you know, I got something that was sort of like it, and I thought I looked the dogs I probably did I probably looked like a dog's dinner because nobody could do Bowie, <laughs> but he was effortlessly cool, wasn't he? so I don't think there was a duff act. In the entire day. So a couple of other memories, things that people probably don't realise happened while we were in Wembley Stadium. So a teddy bear was being tossed from one end of Wembley Stadium to the other. It made its way from the very front where the stage was and was tossed up in the air and was kept up in the air all the way to the back of Wembley and all the way back up again. You didn't see that on TV. There was a streaker, So, as we were facing the stage to our left, which was opposite where the royal box was, somewhere, at some point during the day, some very, I don't know, extrovert individual decided he would stand up stark bollock naked on his seat in the stand and just waved to the crowd, and he got a resounding wave wave of applause off the stadium. It must have been between acts or something. They're great little, precious little memories of the day. A couple of years ago, I decided to see, could I get my Live Aid programme signed by as many of the artists that played? And of course, I'll never get some of them now. We've lost them, and I missed a couple of opportunities um, but I've gotten quite a few, um, and I've met both Bob Geldof. I call him Bob because, like, we're we're that close. We met for a minute, and <laughs> Major, uh, who was very tolerant of me rabbiting on, because I was a fan of his music and of what he did with Live Aid. They've signed the ticket, which is a really precious possession, and of course the uh, the program. I think some of the others I've I've had sign it include Howard Jones. We had a great chat about the the show. Thomas Dolby signed the David Bowie page for me. That was great. The one that I was, I think, most satisfied in getting was Alison Moyes' autograph. I was always a fan of of Alison, and I met her um, before a gig in Dublin, and she very she very kindly said, "You don't look old enough to have been at Live Aid," and uh, I I keep that filed away <laughs> because if you could see me, I'm a very balding mid-50s man. <laughs> so for Alison Moy to say, I don't look old, I'll take that every day.
0: Going back to Smash It's Now and 1839 back at Wembley. It's time for a bit of zany humour from funny men Griff Rhys-Jones and Mel Smith, who come out dressed as British bobbies after a couple of not v popular gags they announce. Her Majesty, Queen... And onto stage centre, prances Freddie Mercury in skimpy white vest and tight jeans. The roar from the crowd is huge, reaching an alarming crescendo as Freddie starts to tickle the ivories and sing the opening lines to that hoary old chestnut bohemian rhapsody. Just about everybody seems to be wigging out to Queen. Who'd have thought it? And I know we still talk about this set to this day. It's been immortalised in the Bohemian Rhapsody film, move for move, even a cameo from a a David Hepworth clone who looks more like Timmy Mallet, but (laughs) less said about that the better. But it was an absolutely riveting and, and revelatory performance that was just like unlike anything else that we'd seen that day you know Queen did their final world well we didn't know it was going to be the final world tour but their final world tour the next year where they were able to sell out Wembley Stadium and I think it was purely on the back of this performance that they were able to just go out and play two in some places in South America over a hundred thousand people in one venue and Freddie Mercury was just absolutely at home doing that
6: yeah, I mean the live eight performance just raised them up another another couple of rungs, didn't it? I mean they were already kind of rock and roll royalty, but they kind of went stratospheric after that, didn't they? What's well, in the name, isn't it? Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> I think it's just as well, it's for the career of uh, Mel Smith and Griff Rhys-Jones that uh, the set was so good. And we could all forget that absolutely terrible gag. Ladies and <laughs> here they are, Her Majesty Queen. It doesn't even work, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really terrible gag, isn't it? Now, never put comedians on at big rock concerts, as Ricky Gervais will uh, testify. But it was a big deal. I, I probably wasn't really a fan of Queen at the time. And I don't remember them sort of being at like a low ebb. I thought they were a big deal. They'd had a couple of recent, really big hits and kids at school like Queen. They were one of the older bands that I think younger lads and girls were still into, but yeah, you can't, you can't really argue. I remember the radio Gaga bit. It's game over in it. The winner is Sir Frederick, Lord Lucan of Mercury, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It still amazes me to this day that the whole of Wembley just knew what to do in radio Gaga and then repeated it for, we will rock you straight on cue. There they are, all are just just clapping along.
1: And the fact that they then, Freddie and Brian May came back later on and did that dreadful acoustic number, they transcended that because everyone seems to forget that bit as well yeah is this the world we created or something it's mentioned here isn't it
0: yeah mike mike problems are high yeah it was just absolutely drenched in feedback and the sound of the backstage roadies and technicians and things coming over the pa or certainly over the broadcast anyways <laughs> and of course the same problems that um scuppered paul mccartney's appearance as well
1: <laughs> meanwhile sir clifford richard is furiously banging on the doors trying to be let in because he wants to go off he's been watching it all day and he wanted to go and do an impromptu performance like it was Wimbledon or something and of course he does rock up on the uh, BBC footage apparently later on about three in the morning I can't remember if it's mentioned here that he does manage to steal his way in there doesn't he
0: and then to the well Simple Minds they played the uh, Philadelphia end again a welcome sight doing Don't You Forget About Me but they also did a track from the, I don't know if they haven't come out at that point. or No, it, it probably hadn't come out once upon a time. It was still uh, probably a couple of months of, away, but they did um, Jungle Land I think, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, and watching the footage, they think it's all over. Someone's
1: telling them to get off stage because they were overrunning, and somehow they caught up with themselves, and they just finished Don't You Forget About Me, and Bill Graham's at the side of the stage going, what are you doing? Get back on. So literally, <laughs> Jim Kerr just goes, thank you very much, Philadelphia, good night, walks off stage and immediately does a double complete double take and goes right back on again and just goes here's a here's a sound call and he launches into um promise you a miracle i think it is yeah so they come back on
0: it's the shortest encore in history and then dame david bowie graces the stage of wembley the one that i was waiting for and i yeah asked me then who was the best person at live aid and i would have said david bowie even though I knew I was lying to myself and it was really Queen. (laughs) But I I thought David Bowie's set was great. You know, he's got Thomas Dolby on keyboards and a big chunk of uh, Prefab Sprout backing in as well. Uh, And he doesn't necessarily do his biggest hits, TVC15, just kind of scraped into the top 40 back in 76. Heroes wasn't even a big hit back in 77, but somehow seemed to fit the day. And more recent one with uh, Modern Love, and he also did Rebel Rebel. But he was one of the performers who was used to playing in front of big crowds. And even though he was probably <laughs> bricking it like many, many people were, he doesn't show. He comes out and he, he absolutely nails it. And if Queen hadn't been on, I think Bowie's set would have been the best of the day.
1: It is, it is really good. Like you say, yeah, I, I, I don't remember being that bothered that I didn't know the songs. And also, I don't think anybody in 1985 was desperate to hear tracks from Ziggy Stardust or, you know, Lad Sane. I think. He'd already got his act honed by then. They wanted to see 80s Bowie. The best bit, though, because he cuts the set short. I think he was going to do five years, which would have been a bit weird. And he doesn't do it. And he's already agreed to cut the set short so that they can show the cars video. But as he's walking along he's, uh, and he says, this is what the day's all about. Please send your money in. <laughs> in, in that perfect Bowie way. It's, it's just a lovely way to sign off. And obviously off he goes, puts his jacket on and everybody starts crying and watching the cars video.
0: Yeah. And where apparently more donations came in after that video than at any point during the day.
1: Yeah, well, this this is after. Um, so Geldof did the table-thumping, fogged the address bit with Hepworth, I think just after Queen, because he'd seen that going down a storm and he'd seen the money coming in it and it was a million or something, which is a lot of money in 1985, but it's not as much as he was expecting to, to get. So he's up in the gallery with uh, David Hepworth, Billy Connolly, Pamela Stevenson, and Ian Astbury from The Cult, who is trying to discreetly <laughs> sm- puff away on a, what I assume is a regular cigarette.
0: And uh,
1: we, we, we get the, uh, um, no, fuck the address, which obviously everyone then subsequently translates as, give us your fucking money, which he obviously never said. Interestingly, particularly bearing in mind that the senior editor of Smash It is sat next to him <laughs> and is the subject of the F word, no mention of it in this uh, report so maybe it wasn't seen as either they just forgot in the in the rush or he just said oh just let's just draw a line under that or they just it didn't seem that big a deal i remember it though <laughs>
5: Hello, giddy carousel of pop. Uh, My name is Richard and in 1985 uh, during Live Aid I was 18 and I was selling um, TVs and hi-fis and stereos and all kinds of things at British home stores in Romford, in Essex. My abiding memory of the day was um, being able to watch it while I was working, which was a bit of a luxury. So in terms of looking back on it now, I've got a videotape because um, although I um, couldn't sit in and watch it, I saw most of it up until the point that um, I clocked off at about sort of 6, 7 o'clock in the evening on that Saturday. Um, I did get my mate Adam Poulton to do a VHS tape of uh, bands that I wanted to be recorded I've still got the tape, bizarrely, and... um Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a who's who's of '80s in terms of who I was liking. So I've got uh, Ultravox um, on there. I wanted to record. I wanted to record Bowie, Howard Jones. I managed to get taped uh, McCartney because my mate Adam was a massive McCartney fan and uh, insisted that I had on I had that on the uh, on the tape. Um, I've got all of the U2 performance. Um, I think I've got Spandau Ballet. My uh, current girlfriend went um, with her brother to Live Ape. My girlfriend's probably got a far more interesting story about it than I have, um, uh, as she was there. And uh, one of two things that she remembers is firstly that where she was stood, and it was baking hot day. If you remember, she came away from the day with a suntan down one side of her face, um, and secondly that um, she has still got a spare ticket because she bought six tickets for the event and could only get five people to go so she still has to this day a spare ticket uh, for Live Aid um, anyway that's my recollections uh, thanks so much for the podcast it's bloody awesome take care lots of love bye
0: so on John his set was plagued by feedback and stuff but I think he pulls a, a master stroke by getting Kiki D on to do don't go breaking my heart and then a fantastic climax brings out George Michael and Andrew Ridgely I think if he gets to introduce Andrew Ridgely he just sort of like goes and stands at the back and pretends to do some backing vocals (laughs) but uh, George Michael uh, singing Don't Let The Sun Go Down On Me uh, which is looking back at it now haven't seen that for, for a long long time an absolute highlight of the day I think i wasn't you know my sister liked wham and george michael that that was her thing and it wasn't necessarily mine to like it was mine to to scoff at i liked proper music and wham weren't proper music but looking back now i can absolutely see that george michael was just yeah absolutely brilliant on on those those few minutes that he got on stage after elton john we get madonna from jfk and then the uh, climax at Wembley, Freddie Mercury and Brian May doing a little song that nobody can hear. Paul McCartney doing a little song that nobody can hear. And then I think Bob Geldof has the right attitude when the um, the, the assembled masses troop onto the stage and sing Do They Know It's Christmas, when he says, uh, if we're going to cock it up, we might as well cock it up with all the world watching. Whereas you compare that with the uh, finale, At Philadelphia, and they do it's about an eight minute version of We Are the World. And they're trying to be really slick and professional, but mics aren't switched on. You can't hear Harry Belafonte. People don't know whether they should be singing their lines. Patty LaBelle just sings over the top of absolutely everyone, doesn't leave any space whatsoever. I mean, every charity concert with a big sing-along at the end needed someone to do some improvising and ad-libbing, and Patty LaBelle was the woman for that at Philadelphia. It was Alison Moyer in Wembley at our end of Live Aid. But not content with bringing out all these stars in in Philadelphia. They bring on a children's choir as well. Who you can't hear. (laughs) That's
6: just a step too far, isn't it?
0: And it's just like, oh, stop it, stop it. You could have just done a couple of choruses and that that would have been fine. Not just, one more time. Let's let's do that again. Yeah, let's not. It's not sounding good. It's not as good a song (laughs) as uh, Do They Know It's Christmas. Let's leave it there. Good night, Philadelphia.
6: No, I think you're right that sort of um slightly shambolic ending was was a perfect way of doing it really because it there's a real there's a nice kind of humanity to it and it it didn't feel over choreographed or over scripted and it wasn't all shiny it was a bit ramshackle and you know very british <laughs> really you know
1: no, it's great. It, it was any way they could do it. Um, you know, it's not Christmas, but we're going to sing. <laughs> we're going to sing. Do they know it's Christmas? Um, I get really worried when I watch it back. Uh, when Pete Townsend and Paul McCartney hoist Bob Geldof aloft on their shoulders, because apparently his back had got. You know, obviously, poor guy's not slept for days on end. You know, and he's he's running around every, organizing everything backstage, and I think his back had gone at some point in the afternoon. By that point, I think he's just running on pure adrenaline, so he probably didn't feel a thing, but I bet that boy was sore when he got up in the morning, having spent several hours in the, uh, whatever, the club, uh, the legends, a little bit of legends (laughs) to do that. Uh, There's a brilliant little smash it's little gag in here somewhere that kind of sums up the sort of vibe at the end of the night, and it just says... 3.06am, Clodagh Rogers wins the Eurovision Song Contest at the second attempt with Jack in the Box. Oops. (laughs) Oh, no, sorry, forget that bit.
0: (laughs) We jumped back an hour earlier and uh, back in London, a young acoustic guitar strumming singer makes an impromptu appearance on the BBC broadcast and upstages Duran Duran and just about everyone else for that matter his name, of course, is Sir Clifford Cliff Richard. <laughs> and that, yeah, he does uh, turn up. He'd been doing a, a gig somewhere else in the country and then uh, came straight from there down to the uh, nightclub in the West End to uh, treat. Whoever was there, Sue Pollard and David Essex to his heartfelt song about Live Aid.
1: Oh, lovely. And also, if you do get a chance, if if you if you do watch that, uh, the fantastic two-part documentary about this, it's really impressive just the number of people they've got in it. But there's two uh, female special constables in it who are being interviewed about their day. <laughs> and there's a bit where they say, uh, yeah, and there was a point where these two fellas came over and said, excuse me, we're in dire straits. We need to get our equipment uh, across to the other venue because dire straits immediately after their set running over to Wembley Arena to do a gig of their own which because they they were already doing two gigs that night and uh, these two special constables are just like would say oh yeah we'll help you out and they went over to security and went excuse me these gentlemen are in dire straits and they need to uh, get across the other venue <laughs> thinking they meant dire straits not
0: they're in a bit of bother so,
1: <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> My name is Faizan Fiaz, and in 1985, I was 13 years old. I was living with my mum and my dad in East London with my siblings. I went to uh, mostly Asian girl school. Pop music, British pop music or pop music generally wasn't that popular at my school because most of us were South Asian, Bollywood was huge. But for me, in a sort of my minor act of rebellion, I kind of turned my back on Bollywood back then and put all of my focus onto pop music and especially Duran Duran, who my absolute favorite and was really thrilled to find out that they would be performing on the Philadelphia side of the Live Aid concert. So my memories of that day were, I had made some plans to record the entire thing because we had a video recorder. Not everyone had a video in uh, the 80s but um, being a South Asian family, we definitely had one because all Asian families had a video recorder. It was the only way that our families could keep in touch with South Asian culture through Bollywood films, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And was it Status Quo that started? I can't remember. It feels like they did. I mean Status Quo were always a bit of a joke band. But no one seemed to care. There was like no coolness that day. It was like whatever band you liked or you didn't like, everyone seemed to be on an equal footing. And I think the first exciting performer for me was David Bowie. And that was just an electrifying performance. I think he was, he was, I mean, Bowie had lots of peaks in his career um, and that was definitely a peak his outfit was incredible you know he looked totally cool totally at ease I mean it was a huge concert I mean the the the, the size was palpable I think everyone even watching it could sense you know the, the you know the the scale of it but he totally took it in his stride I mean you could Totally. So he was enjoying it, and the audience were enjoying. We were certainly enjoying it back home too. You too. The famous, you know, instrumental that went on. Bono sun, suddenly leaps off the stage, and uh, it was really melodramatic, wasn't it? Because like it was. Uh, Oh, boy, I can just picture it now. He jumps off the stage and he kind of he's sort of like um, baying into the crowd. He's kind of like reaching out into the crowd. And then suddenly, like your focus comes towards, you know, who he's reaching out to. And it's this this brown girl in he's being squished in, uh, you know, in the crush at Wembley Stadium. And he's, you know, he's calling out to the security guards to pull her out. She gets pulled out and she's all kind of weeping and crying. And he brings her on to the stage and then he dances with her. And it was just this really kind of over-the-top, melodramatic, really 80s kind of moment. For me, who was still a pop fan in 85, of course, though, Duran Duran were the band that I was waiting for. And they performed in uh, Philadelphia, I remember. So I had to stay up till quite late to watch them. It wasn't their best performance that I had seen. They were very sweaty. It was a very hot sweaty day. I remember everyone looked had this sort of eyeliner dripping it looked like on on stage, and the band looked quite dis um what's the word kind of not very united. I, I read subsequently in biographies about Duran Duran that they weren't getting along at that point. They had split into Arcadia and they'd split into the Power Station, two separate bands. It's like these temporary projects or whatever. And you could tell, I think, on stage at that gig at Live Aid that they weren't really together. They didn't really look like they even liked each other, to be honest with you. So it wasn't a hugely enjoyable uh, performance to watch but you know when you're blinded by pop you know fandom it doesn't really matter does it I was a huge fan of Nick Rhodes. So that I was happy. I was happy to watch him. So nobody in my house got to watch TV that day except me because we had obviously just one TV. And we, it's not like you know these days where everyone's got their own device or you know TV to watch whatever they wanted to do. It was one TV, one video. Nobody got to watch anything except Live Aid that day at our house in East London.
0: In terms of who should have been there, who should have played, who was missing? Who who would you have liked to have seen that wasn't there?
6: I think at the time, I would have liked to see The Cure then. They would have been good. Doing a bit of Love Cats and uh, In Between Days and the like. You know, they were a a good pop band. Uh, I'm trying to think who else would have been... I would have expected to see.
0: China Crisis? Madness. Madness would have been good.
6: Madness, yeah, of course. Well, I think... Had they
0: split up by then? No, they were still... Still hanging on. I I don't think things were great at that point. Um but they were still together.
1: Well the, the biggest group of very just the few months preceding Frankie.
0: Of course. They were the mm.
1: biggest thing going. And and the other the other one, of course, and I think he was on the cards and you know, I think he was uh perhaps not uh, in the best of uh, state to be on stage, was uh, Boy George and Culture Club.
0: For for me, the, there isn't anybody that I would have wanted to see on the day that I thought, oh, you know, why weren't they playing or anything like that? But looking back, it does kind of seem odd that Bruce Springsteen wasn't there and Prince wasn't there and, and Michael Jackson. But there is kind of like... There's, there's a lot of false memory syndrome around Live Aid and about who played and what people remember seeing. Uh, and I know... A lot of people do think that Bruce Springsteen played at one one end or, or the other. And, in fact, he had played at Wembley just a few nights before because some of the staging that was used for Live Aid was actually part of what had been set up for his shows. But Bruce did not play. But uh, one of our listeners did actually send in something about this kind of thing. Paul Margach. Um, he says, I saw tiny bits and pieces of it with my mom, but I don't remember much. She has fond memories of performances by Paul Young and you too, being especially impressed by Pride in the Name of Love. Only trouble <laughs> is they didn't play it at Live Aid. <laughs> 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 I think, Gavin, you've, you've encountered uh, something similar as well.
6: Yeah, Lynn, my wife, she was a massive Howard Jones fan at the time. Uh, she was in the fan club and she had scrapbooks on him and stuff. And we were talking about Live Aid the other day. And uh, she was saying about who she'd enjoyed on the day because she'd watched it all on telly. And I said, oh, you, you must have enjoyed Howard Jones. And she was like, Howard Jones didn't play Live Aid. It's like, pretty sure he did. <laughs> she had no memory of it at all. I had to find it on YouTube and uh, just approved her. And she was like, she genuinely had no idea at all he'd played Live Aid. <laughs> Made a little impression. Clearly, I mean,
1: he only did one number. So if he just popped out for a, a comfort break, yeah. uh, you'd have missed the whole of Hojo's <laughs> set, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. The, 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 also, there were. Remember this? There were rumors in the press that uh, the Beatles were going to perform, as in Bongo and uh, George Harrison were going to join Paul McCartney at the piano, and uh, Julian Lennon was going to stand in for uh, for John. Ah, didn't happen.
0: No, that was actually in our TV schedule as well. In in the local newspaper, it said Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr and Julian Lennon. Wow. It never happened. I kept waiting for that all day long. Never happened. Can
1: you imagine the Beatles, three of the Beatles back together and the the mics don't work? Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got another uh, message in from from one of the listeners as well. Steve Fenton, I was 15 and went over the handlebars of my bike and to A&E the evening before. I watched it on telly with my broken arm in a sling whilst on drugs, although probably fewer than most of the performers. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) And uh, former guest on the carousel from a few episodes back, Catherine Sked, uh, she said, it's a little painful to share. I was on a girl guide camping weekend, so the live bit passed me by. I left very specific video recording instructions at home. Can't bring myself to talk about it. So clearly those instructions were um, ignored. (laughs) There's a tale of pain and woe in there somewhere, isn't there? Gavin
6: can form a support group.
0: (laughs) So you're not on your own, Gav. You're not alone. And we've had a lovely email from Pete Selby as well with some of his memories of the day. In parts, very similar to to my Live Aid day, here's what he wrote. "'I watched the first four to five hours of it upstairs "'in my bedroom, curtains closed to keep out the sun's glare "'on a portable black-and-white television, "'but with the music playing through my parents' hi-fi, "'which was being simultaneously broadcast on Radio 1. "'This blew my mind and is the only explanation I have "'for not watching it on the colour TV downstairs.'" It does surprise me that my dad, who was a huge music fan, didn't stick around to watch it with me. I recall that he was playing cricket in the afternoon for his bank. He came home about 6.30, just in time, therefore, for Queen. After this point, we watched the rest of it communally on the big telly. I didn't stay up for the rest of the Philadelphia broadcast. To be honest, whenever they cut across to the US throughout the day, it was largely full of slightly hairy men I didn't recognise or like playing too much guitar... The Wembley show conclusion felt like the perfect end to me The perfect end of my concert Featuring audience members who looked like my neighbours Or friends' older brothers TV comedians I knew Bumbling onto the stage to act the giddy goat And assorted Radio 1 DJs Who felt like safe pairs of hands To guide me through the day In short, and in retrospect This very parochial, the Coldstream Guards All hands to the pumps slightly Heath Robinson sense of occasion All elevated its charm And when I think about Live Aid, which I often do, and through slightly misty eyes, I realise this nostalgia is for something far bigger than just a stadium rock concert. It's a nostalgia for my broader youth, of being that 12-year-old boy living in a small commuter town in Surrey where pop music, Smash it, Top of the Pops Live Aid, was both my backbone and my escape. And so we come to the finale of this part of the podcast which I guess makes us Paul McCartney in a way or Bob Dylan and uh, as I'm sure many of you know it just so happened that two members of the BBC TV presentation team for Live Aid had both been editors of Smash It's in the first half of the 1980s so we hand you over now to David Hepworth and Mark Ellen to share some of their memories of that day and also ponder the legacy of Live Aid.
4: It was no problem going into something totally unrehearsed because nothing on Whistle Test was rehearsed at all. There was no script for anything at all, so you're quite used to that. All I remember is a car, I think, picked me up and took me round to Wembley. I remember being very aware of the fact that it was a lovely day, which I still think is one of the most significant factors of the whole thing. And being delivered to Wembley... And then being conducted up via a series of kind of catwalks and ladders up to the 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 kind of perspex box that used to be suspended in the canopy of the old Wembley Stadium, wherein sat the majestic, usually sat the majestic figure of Des Lynham, you know, pronounced Jimmy the, Hill. The, oh, Jimmy, the Hill Jimmy Hill commentary Hill. box. Yeah. Right. or oh, yeah, it was where they summarized from, wasn't it, rather than commentary and And when you did your bit at Live aid, what they did was they wired you in so they put your earpiece in, and it was you you were you were connected there you couldn't move, you were tethered, you couldn't go to the lavatory or anything like that. so if you had a five hour stint, like I think I did at one point, you simply couldn't move, you know, so, as ever with television, what the presenters remember is the discomfiture and <laughs> and the embarrassment and and they oh my god what's going to happen next rather than the glory that the viewer takes on board that that's really the difference
10: and the terror of, uh, of, of getting it wrong <laughs> in front of all those people I can remember a car arriving and picking up me and Andy Kershaw who live around the corner and Andy shouting up my bedroom window Mark Mark have you got your brown trousers on because we, we, we were absolutely terrified I remember going up to that commentary box I remember the doors opening must have been about 10 o'clock and Dave and I and the rest of us watching the people charging in do you remember that Dave running At, uh... in with their picnic hampers to get to the front but the thing I remember vividly was the idea that we had to kind of hype up this notion that it was going to be the biggest television event in history and we had to believe that we had to radiate that point to the outside world and we started to give out information do you remember that it was um it was now bigger than the apollo 11 moonshot do you remember that day there are more people watching the apollo 11 there are more people watching than the beatles our world now there was no basis for that at all absolutely absolutely none at one point one of us was required to announce that 90% of all television sets in the world are showing this programme. That's not true. I mean, you know, e- even the percentage of the countries that had agreed to take it were not necessarily showing it live. What they were doing was just recording bits and showing it the next day. So that actually had a very destabilising effect on the, on, the, on the team, because we were starting to think, oh my God, the whole world is watching. This is unbelievably unnerving.
4: Yeah, I, I, you'd occasionally get things in your earpiece saying you know before you did a link you know you're like like mark said you'd get you are now broadcasting to whatever the population of the earth was and you thought that is really not helpful no to be told that not helpful one bit I can remember being told there was
10: 2.3 billion people watching. it. And I can remember turning to the person beside me as they were counting us in 10, 9, and saying, How much is a billion? Is thats that, is that yeah, 10, 10 million claim. or is they're it? All a million or, yeah, It doesn't
4: matter, you know. Oh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I did a stint sort of mid afternoon, I think, probably till early evening, with uh, Paul Gambaccini. And we were there to kind of do the intros and to do the field the occasional kind of business about the appeal and all that kind of stuff but also you were there in case anything went down which didn't very often but i suppose it did occasionally there were the the odd delays and so you'd have you'd have a number of junior producers Uh, going down into the backstage area or wherever and then re-emerging with with lesser-known pop stars who hadn't been considered quite famous enough to be on the bill. But we're, none, we're, we're damned if they were going to be missed out of this thing altogether. And so you'd, you'd have a sofa which would have Andrew Ridgeley, and would have Fish. You had Marillion would be there, you know. And most famously, Ian Asprey of the Cult. Well, that's what
10: and I was nobody say. knew who he was. I think you then, were doing the interview. No, nobody no. introduced him because actually, the person who brought him up
4: didn't know who he was. I he looked, just looked like a rock star. See, they put him on the sofa and. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to come to this guy in a second. There's a full sofa. And I thought, who's that? And I looked at the producer, May Miller. Yeah. And I said. She just went. I just went, who's that? And she did the international gesture of puzzlement that said, I don't. She delivered him there, yeah. and she yeah. wasn't sure who he was. And so I had to kind of take my life in my hands, and when it, he when it got to that point and the uh, I just had to say, and now we appear to be joined by Ian Asprey of the cult. Thinking, please, God, if you're not, go along with it. Yeah, but luckily... Just
10: be Ian Asprey for the day.
4: <laughs> yes, if you're Wayne Hussey from the mission, just pretend, you know. Y'all at the, the same time. Every yes, exactly. person sitting at home <laughs> on Saturday afternoon watching. Yeah. You, know, you were kind of cut off from the experience the crowd were having down there, because you were in this Perspex box. Perspex box full of uh, full of celebrities, whatever. And so you know, my memories of Live Aid are things like um sitting there with Billy Connolly when the pretenders were on stage. And the pretenders had recently lost two members, they both died Pete Founder and James Honeyman Scott. And Billy Connolly looked at them and he said to me, I wouldn't join that group. And I said, Why not? He says, Nobody leaves. <laughs> It so it's a very, very
7: irreverent it's joke, so but it makes
4: me laugh know, every time I think about Live Aid, I think about Billy Connolly. One of the big uh,
10: moments that I can remember was later on, we were at Legends, the bit I was broadcasting was at Legends with Mike Smith and various other people. And uh, it was when Bob Dylan came on, which was the, which was the finale, wasn't it? It was Bob Dylan uh, with Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards. And I was standing there with Bob Geldof and various people waiting. This was just everyone absolutely revved up. This is going to be so thrilling. The, the, the cherry on the cake. And Bob Dylan started his set with the least promising words I have ever heard anybody ever utter in a live performance. He came on stage and said, I'd like to bring on Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards, but I don't know where they are. And that's okay. what he said. At which point, Keith Richards comes shambling on with a cigarette in his mouth. Do you remember? The sort of weird waistcoat yeah. with, with, with only one button and no shirt oh, on. God, yeah, and Ronnie yeah. Wood comes on in some kind of blouse, you know. And they're completely out of tune. And then Dylan starts playing Hollis Brown, the Ballad of Hollis Brown, a song they had not rehearsed. I know that because I, I, I interviewed Ronnie Wood about three weeks later and he said that they had rehearsed some songs laughingly, they call it rehearsal, but that wasn't one of them. So they were playing live in front of this enormous audience as the finale, a song that the two of the members of the group playing didn't
4: recognise. Well, That's didn't he famously funny. say, wasn't he whispered to him, we're going to do Hollis Brown? And Ronnie thought, Hollis Brown? Yeah, it's, cough it's medicine. a song about cough medicine. <laughs> yeah, I know. So and you kind of have to i mean it's the ultimate example of of how bob dylan and you'll forgive me if i swear on the on your podcast you can cut it out if you don't like it bob dylan i've met rock stars and bob dylan is the only one i've ever met who genuinely doesn't give a fuck and that was not giving a fuck on the biggest possible
10: stage ever yeah. They'd been in their hospitality uh, caravans in the afternoon, uh, plentifully stocked with booze, and had just been drinking solidly in the in the scorching heat since about two o'clock in the afternoon. And it looked like
4: it. God, it was appalling, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you know, and uh, we just kind of got through the day like you did. I mean, you thought this is going really well, and when you you, you thought when Queen were on and things like that, you thought. There's something happening here because you could, you know, you could see the um, the fact that with Queen that the crowd were part of the act and were part of the, the, the visual thing, part of the, the spectacle. And, uh, you know, so that was quite clearly something sort of transformational. And um, I'm my <laughs> other memory is finally getting home about four in the morning. And my wife... Sitting up in bed, you know, not not normally known for you know waiting for me to tumble in from kind of some western <laughs> nightclub or whatever, and she's just sitting there going, "That was something, wasn't it?" And she said, "I've had your mum and I've had your mum on your phone. I've had my mum and dad on the phone. You know what I mean? That they they the experience of people at home was clearly very different. You know, they they'd felt more part of it, oddly enough, than we felt." Completely. Wembley uh,
10: Stadium. I completely. I mean, the thing that really knocked me out was I had to leave at about, I suppose, must be about six or seven o'clock in the evening to go to Legends to do my bit of broadcast, and I got a cab from Wembley down to um, down to the West End, and obviously when we'd gone to Wembley in the morning, life was perfectly normal. When we came back in the middle of Live Aid, it was completely transformed. It was extraordinary. London was deserted. All you could hear anywhere was the sound of the broadcast. In the cab I was in, in the passing cars, from the parks that you went round where people had barbecues, from the open windows of of the buildings you passed. Everybody was watching the broadcast. And that was very, very thrilling and a bit overwhelming, actually, because there we were building up this idea that this great event was taking place. And actually, it turned out it was. It had the the attention of the entire nation.
4: Oh, yeah, it obviously, talking to people afterwards, it obviously just grew during the day, you know, that people people were ringing each other up and saying, have you watched this? I'll turn over to BBC One or BBC Two or whatever and catch it. Uh, The following morning, I'd foolishly agreed to... um, go to Lords to interview Viv Richards, the great cricketer. Uh, and because I, who wouldn't go and meet Viv Richards, you know? And they used to do a programme at the time where sports people picked a bunch of favourite videos or something. And um, so Viv Richards turns up in the nursery end at, at Lords and looks at me and says, oh, good grief, live age, you know. And they'd all been watching it. He said, I had batsmen trying to get out yesterday. To, to to get into the dressing room <laughs> to watch it. I didn't miss Nick Kershaw. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah>. God knows who <laughs> it would be. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear. You know, oh, dear. So that, that gave you an idea of, of just how big a thing it was. And it, it's quite interesting, you know, that you, you think, you know, particularly in sort of pop, or even in my in my you know, memory, which is which goes back a few years. There aren't many events where you can look at them and everybody will tell you where they were that day. I mean, for my case, JFK's, you know, assassination. The Beatles' arrival in in New York in you know, 1964 or whatever. I don't think I remember much else in the 60s where you'd have that same sense of a day, and I don't remember much in the 70s that have that much sense of a day. Whereas Live Aid, you can ask people, say, where were you? And they'll tell you. They were at home or they were in a cab or God, or God knows watch, you know. And, uh, you know, so there aren't many of those those moments, and that was one of them. And I suppose it's Genesis was similarly a moment when Bob Geldof had seen the Michael Burke film um, in when November, of the yeah, November of eighty-four, yeah, the previous year, and and you know that was in the days of still a handful of television channels, and so if a thing like that had impact, it had massive in, impact because he had a huge audience share, you know, and it, it's because it had that huge audience share that he was able to galvanize action as quickly as he did, because Mark and I were there at the you know, the recording of the, of the, the, you know, the live band day, we were at some
10: record. studios in, in Notting Hill. Yeah. yeah.
4: And, and that was like, it all happens on a Sunday and the following day, spoken to, spoken to Michael Grade, and it's going to be plugging it on BBC one at five to seven or whatever. And it will be on top of the box on Thursday. And it, you know, it was that, there was just that sense that things were moving forward and, you know, live aid, the actual event was the kind of the topper of his, I suppose. Two things I think it also was responsible for. Very briefly, one was was it, it sort of created the
10: stadium circuit. You know, people um, had no either thought they didn't want to go to stadiums or had given up going to those kind of big events. Looked at live aid on the telly with the blue sky, thought that looks like fun. Looks I'm like going to start fun. going to concerts again. It, it really boosted and it extended the careers of all those people who we thought were slightly washed up. The Who, Queen, my God, they're become... start all over again. You know, and um, the other thing I think was that. Um, It started the 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 appetite, created the appetite for that kind of those highly charged moments of mass connection that we've had since, where clearly people really, really enjoyed and needed that feeling of being of being feeling the same way at the same moment often internationally you know the mandela concert lady Di concert even the george floyd demonstrations very recently i think i can see echoes of live aid in that of those moments with the whole world and in the decline of big live television events there aren't that many there aren't many of those moments around
4: and i think you can still feel its effect i think i think it's worth pointing out that i don't think live aid was as had as much impact worldwide as in britain we like to think it did uh you know In Britain, you still had the BBC at that point, and you could still, you know, they could ring it. You know, Live Aid happened because Bob Geldof got Harvey Goldsmith and Mike Appleton in a room and said, We're going to do this. And Mike Appleton was the guy who could put it on, who died, you know, only a few weeks ago, uh, who was the guy who could put it on the television. He knew how to make it happen. Nobody else knew how to do that at all. So it had so in Britain, it, it felt incredibly close to us. I think if you go to Texas or Russia or South America, I don't think you'd have the same sense of connection. No, because a lot of a lot of them didn't see it at,
10: at live. Yeah, and and, it's and also, extra. It's,
4: it's mainly it's mainly you know it's British bands and it's American bands and so Probably more British bands than anything anywhere else. And I I got a reminder of this. When I think ten years later, I went to Tigray in Ethiopia to do a magazine piece about Ethiopia ten years post uh, live aid, and I was interviewing a bunch of farmers from Tigray who'd been, you know, there. They'd been sort of teenagers during the time of the terrible famine. And I taught I had my interpreter was a guy who worked for the local aid services, but he was he was Ethiopian, but fabulous English. And you know, had travelled and and you know, quite cosmopolitan. And I said, could you ask them if you ever if they've ever heard of Bob Geldof?" And he turned to me and he said, "Who's Bob Geldof?" And I think that tells you a lot. It's sobering, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know, whereas as far as you know, people present it in this country as if we saved the world. Well, no, you didn't really. You know? In America, I, mean, I think
10: they largely remember it as the thing that launched Madonna's career because Madonna was so, so successful that because, you know, the big rock bands, the George Thorogood and the Destroyers, Tom Petty and the Harbourers, those people sprawled out across the stage. That doesn't make for very good television. But a girl doing her club act with her two dancers, one of them her brother, that little
4: routine, which worked beautifully on television, and, it, and her whole career, just never looked back, did it? Well, it's interesting that, because I've just been writing about this, because I've just been writing a book about the um, the British invasion of the United States, and, you know, which kind of, 1964, and then it kind of, there's a second British invasion in 83, 84, and then there's Live Aid. And I think Live Aid is kind of the end of that, really, because the people who emerge really big stars in the years... Following huge stars are Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, and Prince. They're all American and they're all solos. And British America was conquered by British groups. And it was the groupness of them. Yeah, it was was. was the animals, the stones. That's right, yeah. 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 That is what people liked about them was groups. Whereas move twenty years forward. What Bruce Springsteen and Madonna are about is individuality, and what they're also about is America. Um, And so, I think there was a bit of a shift, bit of a shift post Live Aid. So you could say that it was, it was the kind of last hurrah for quite a few of those. uh, there's Smash Hits favourites who had kind of prospered in the in the few years before then. You know, you our Ballets and you know well, Adam and was famously. Well Adam and performance was absolutely breathtaking. What do you think about it?
10: I mean, I think he was I think he was only on the bill because he was managed by the same person who managed the police and they said, Well, all Sting. They said, if you're gonna have Sting, you've got to have Adam, you know. And, uh, and Adam did the, made the worst decision imaginable, didn't he? Instead of going on and, and playing one or two songs that everybody knew and loved, he went on and did his new single. Am I right?
4: What's, what's the one thing nobody wants to hear while brawling in the open air at uh, Wembley on a Saturday afternoon, your new single? I don't care who you are, we don't want to hear your new single. We want to hear your hits, you know. We want to celebrate. Well, Elvis we to...
10: Costello did, did an even better version of The Right Thing, which not only did he did he realise the importance of his playing his one song, but he played what I think he introduced as... Uh, he said, help me sing this uh, this uh, old English northern folk song, and it was All You Need Is Love. And do you remember he had the words written on his hand? Though, yeah. You didn't yeah. That. Now, that's brilliant. So you actually don't even do one of your own songs. You play a song that will absolutely unite everybody. But Adamant, did we hear from him after that? Possibly not so much.
0: So, the, the rest of Smash It's... Yes, there are other things in the mag. Yeah, we need to talk about Lisa Stansfield and Chewy Raccoon. Come on. Um, the contents page tells us that there are song lyrics by um, OMD for Secrets. Animal Nightlife, Love is the Great Pretender. Fergal Sharky, Loving You. Opus, Live is Life. Denise LaSalle, My Toot Toot. Jackie Graham, Round and Round. Toya, Soul Passing Through Soul. Phil Collins, Take Me Home. Conway Brothers, Turn It Up. Glenn Frey, or Glenn Frey, sorry. Smugglers, bru- Blue, bl- Slugglers, Booze. Uh, Glenn Frey Glenn Frey, and Smuggler's <laughs> Blues <laughs> and Billy Ocean, Mystery Lady um, Gavin, have got a little lyrics quiz for us, I believe
6: I was thinking, you know, we've done several of these podcasts now and, I mean, really the unique selling point of Smash It's was the lyrics, wasn't it? But we, we rarely talk about the lyrics so I thought, and there's some choice lyrics in this one I've got to say, it's a particularly thigh issue for Cracker's lyrics so... Um, I've just taken a few kind of lines from several of the songs. Looking at that contents page, let's see if you can uh, identify them because they're not probably particularly well-known lines from songs. So let's try you with this one. Are you ready for some crazy poetry? Let's see if you can identify (laughs) uh, the singer and the song with this one. Beyond closed doors, the mirror hates the child I once knew. And out where the human race is, look at the wounded faces. Any takers? That's uh, got to be Toya.
1: Yeah. Soul within soul, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Soul oh! passing through soul. Well done. Well done, Tim. Very good. Well, the six-form lyrics were a bit of a given. <laughs> Apologies. Apologies, Toya.
6: <laughs> All right. Let's try. Let's try this one. This one is uh, is quite a smooth lyric. Uh, Can I spend the night with you? Can I have your number? I'll be anything you want me to. We ought to get something started. Is that Billy Ocean? Very good. Mystery Lady by Billy Ocean, yeah. All right, let's try on another one. There's nice lyrics, those aren't they?
0: I like the, uh, the the last line on the on that Billy Ocean song. Let me let me just find it. Page forty six. Let me just jump through there. You need to be loved by by me. Don't you want to be loved by me? <laughs> Please be loved by me.
3: <laughs> Please.
6: <laughs> oh, go on. I think you might know this one. So you can look as much, but if you much as touch, you're going to have yourself a case. I'm going to break your face.
1: Don't mess with my toot-toot. Yes.
6: Don't mess with Denise LaSalle's toot-toot. I mean, come on. <laughs> Let's try with the last one. Just a short one, this one. Don't wire. Don't phone. It's Billy on the saxophone. Oh.
1: Ah, is it that's... George Thorogood and the Destroyer? <laughs> Are they in this
6: week? Why is they not on the cover? <laughs> um, is it Fergal Sharky? It's not Fergal Sharky. Conway brothers, turn it up. It's not Conway brothers. Sorry, guys. It's Animal Nightlife. Love is just a great pretender. Oh, ah, see the jazzy.
0: It's the jazzy bit, isn't it? Ah, oh, well, the next line. And don't forget the animalettes. Yeah. Well, I thought
6: that I'd give it away
0: if I said that, but.
6: Yeah. <laughs> that's the end of my lyrics
9: quiz.
0: Well, let's have a look at um, bits, shall we? There, there is other things happening in the world of pop music. In this week in 90, or this fortnight in 1985, including the wedding of Nick Beggs from Cadger, not Cadger Goo, Goo anymore, but Cadger to his long time girlfriend Boo, who now pre- helps present ITV's Winner Takes All with Jimmy Tarby Tarbuck. Mm, they're so dreamy. There's <laughs> just too much to unpack there, isn't there? Presumably, she's now called Boo Biggs. Hey, <laughs> Boo Biggs. <laughs> and the uh, obsession with Andrew Ridgely's racing yes. driving continues. The first time Andrew Ridgely had a go at this thing, motor racing, he crashed headfirst at 60 miles an hour into a barrier at Brands Hatch, and the race hadn't even started. <laughs> He's in all the time and I think on the, the the 1985
1: end of year issue there's little images that say this was 1985 and obviously one of the pictures is Geldof with his fist in the air and there's a picture of Madonna and I think there's a picture of Prince. There's also a picture of Andy Ridgely with a with a cup of tea and his, uh, his Renault jacket on as well so that was the year, that was 1985 definitely.
0: And uh, underneath that, that, the band that we've all been dying to talk about. The Mighty Raccoon. Chewy Raccoon, (laughs) to give them their full titles. I'd like like to enlighten us on uh, Chewy Raccoon, Tim. I wish I could. Um, (laughs) We don't know an awful lot about them, other than that uh, they've got a song called uh,
1: Don't Touch Me. They hate cats and they love Cadbury's chocolate buttons and they want to be revoltingly famous. And an attempt to find that song... Uh, unless you found it Simon I couldn't find it on YouTube Uh, there is another Chewy Raccoon song which is awful and sounds like a demo or something it it doesn't sound like anything that would have ever been released Uh, but yeah there they are Chewy Raccoon the most anyone's spoken about them in years
6: (laughs) it's time for the Chewy Raccoon revival (laughs) <laughs> bring it on rise up you
1: raccoon hordes they were nearly on a live aid and then Adamant they decided to let Adamant have a go because you raccoon we're going to get a look in <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they look like uh, the, the band in that uh, TV ad Was it for Twix or something like that you can't sing you can't dance you'll go a long way <laughs> that
6: picture of China Crisis uh, haunts me as well because like China Crisis like in my head it was two members and then there's five of them but is it me or do they all look like they're related to each other? <laughs> they all look like they sort of share a very small gene pool between them. I don't know really what's going on. The two lads on top of the shoulders are kind of like a mirror image of each other. Well, one looks a little bit more wurzel Gummidge than the other one. And then uh, two of the lads underneath look like they're both out of Brookside. And then the guy on the left looks like an amalgamation of the other four. It's a strange look they've got going on there. Well, bands do start
1: to look like each other, don't they, apparently, after a while. If they spend enough time on a tour bus, they all start to resemble one another. So maybe that's what's happening. The members of China Crisis are gradually morphing into one uber-crisis person.
0: Well, it's starting to more closely resemble Jimmy Hill, I think.
6: That's a good spot,
0: yeah. And actually, can I, can I just draw your attention? Just, just jumping back a page to uh, the Animal Nightlife lyric again. I just can't leave these guys alone. But the uh, the guy on the far left playing the bass guitar, you see him? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Rick Astley or Ken from Brass? Oh, yeah, that's got resemblance. Right. Huh? And it looks like he could be in a... Yeah, 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 yeah. He looks like both of them at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What else is going on in bits? Uh, Oh, Jackie Graham. So she'd uh, recently put out her first album, and she's talking about how she used to play in in a band going up and down the country, playing in in pubs and clubs. Quite a a pain to point out that it's not cabaret. Uh, But she's talking about that she used to hold down a full-time job at the same time. I just don't know how I managed it, she giggles. The lads used to pick me up from work, and then we'd drive north, south, east, or wherever. I think she might mean west there. And do our stuff. At the time, we were doing covers of chart stuff, not cabaret, and then we'd pack all the gear away and get back to Birmingham around five or six in the morning. Then I'd have a couple of hours sleep and it'd be back to work. I'd get my head down at lunchtime, get someone to go down to the pub and buy me a sausage or something, (laughs) go back to work, and then the whole cycle would start again. Yeah, that really tickled me when I was reading through that and she talks about
6: having a sausage in the pub. It's not very glamorous, is it?
0: Not at all, but I'm wondering if Round and Round is actually about a Cumberland sausage, which is famously <laughs> uh, you know, sold by the yard from a coil. Coil, who also get a mention on page 15,
1: along with Throbbing Gristle, oh. under the 400 Blows interview.
0: Oh, nice segue, Tim. Yeah, it's yeah. all related. <laughs> and there, oh, a young Lisa Stansfield as part of a group called The Blue Zone, uh, the new groupette featuring Lisa Stansfield, ex-presenter of Razzmatazz. I don't remember them at all, but there you go. Well, I looked this up because I don't
1: remember Blue Zone. Apparently, they sort of, the guys in Blue Zone then went and wrote some of the bigger hits. And I think they realized that people were more interested in Lisa than Blue Zone. And they kind of, I think they kind of hung back and graciously put her in the spotlight. And uh, yeah, she sort of kind of eventually left Blue Zone behind and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, I think. Uh, I think that they may still be. I think she may still be married to one of them. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I don't remember that at all. I don't remember her on Razzmatazz, but vaguely,
6: yeah. vaguely. There's no expense spared with those uh, hula hoops covered with chiffon, is there? In the photo,
0: it's probably toilet roll, right? <laughs> to, to be fair. <laughs>
6: <laughs> and then there are flies all over the the
0: page as
1: well, which I don't. I didn't understand until I got. till we get to the end?
0: Ah. Yeah, where the, all the flies are piling up in a heap at the bottom of the uh, last bit, the last feature within bits, the bit of bits. Uh, it's about AC/DC's new album, Fly on the Wall, and it's a bit of a, a competition there.
1: And you can win some ACDC fly spray.
0: <laughs> Just what I've always wanted. Probably <laughs> very, very rare item to own now if it hasn't exploded we get what feels like ever so quickly to the singles reviews on page 21 reviewed by William Shaw in this issue of the hits and um this was the smash it's uh, edition of smash it's where I discovered that um tipex thinner if you uh drop some on the page and then rubbed it with some tissue you could actually rub out big sections of the page I've completely rubbed out the review of Madonna's Into the Groove for some reason, and my friend Liam, uh, Liam Shaw, has uh, got rid of the beginning of William Shaw's name, so it makes it look like Liam Shaw has written the the singles (laughs) reviews, so so he's got rid of the W-I-L, so it just says Liam Shaw. But luckily, I have a second copy of this issue, so I can see it all in full. And young William makes uh, The Cure in between days, his single of the fortnight, joint single of the fortnight, uh, with The Moon is Blue by Colourbox. Any singles there that leap out to you, uh, either from the review or that you bought at the time? Gavin?
6: Well, yeah, the the Cure one, obviously, you know, that's one of the... Great singles, that isn't it? And a uh, well deserved single of Fortnite. Not so sure about the colour box one. I did uh, give it a look on YouTube, and uh, after one play, I was unconvinced into the qualities of that. I know they went on to sort of collaborate on the, the uh, pump up the volume thing, which is great, but yeah, not uh, not so keen on the moon is blue. Otherwise, Get, he takes a few wrong turns, doesn't he? I mean, when he's talking about Madonna, Into the Groove, which is obviously a classic Madonna single now when we look back and think of it. But he says... Uh, he describes it as plodding run-of-the-mill disco, dare I say. And he says you do much better listening to Weird Al Yankovic's his version of Like a Surgeon. So I think we can say he kind of got that one a little bit wrong. <laughs>
0: yeah, but he's favourable about Adam Ant.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, see, he's all right about Adam Ant, but... Um, Prince, who seems to crop up in every single issue of uh, Smash It's Singles Reviews. And he doesn't seem to like Raspberry Beret that much either. He just says it's 60. He says it's an addictive chorus, but uh, he doesn't kind of say too much about it. But yeah, like you say, Adam uh, he says, if I hadn't peaked, I'd have sworn this was Gary Glitter. But then these days, Adam does seem to leap wildly from one style to the next a stormingly blustering piece of rock and roll fun. And yeah, it's hard to disagree with that really. Anything grab your eye there, Tim? Um, I don't think, because at this, at this point I wasn't, still wasn't buying my own records.
1: Amazingly. That would, that would follow uh, sort of towards Christmas and I would start buying things like you too. But anyway, um, yeah, there's, there's no, I'll tell you what there are here. There are two uh, not very good cover versions of, of, of great songs. So one is uh, Philip Bailey's version of uh, Children of the Ghetto, which is a real thing track, which you uh, Put that on the playlist. That's an absolutely fantastic song. Um, but Philip Bailey kind of doesn't really do it justice. He updates it uh, for 1985, which did not really need doing. Uh, and also Loose Ends, which I've no Loose Ends are great, but I don't remember their cover of Bowie's Golden Years. But uh, William Shaw seems to like it. There's not much cop either. We could have worked out really well that a sort of funky version of uh, Golden Years. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's not aged well, that one.
0: No, they performed it on uh, the Lenny Henry show, which was where I heard it. And uh, obviously being a big Bowie fan, I was like, ooh, what's this? And then it's like, "Oh, yeah, am not sure that. about that. It's like, Loose Ends had done some great songs, but that one just yeah. doesn't, quite, doesn't quite hit the mark. I was quite into Go West back in 85, uh, but Goodbye Girl, which was their third single, wasn't into that. I mean, bands had to have a ballad back then, didn't they? And that, that was their ballad. Uh, you know, you've got to show a bit of variety. But out of those records, I bought, um, bought The Cure, In Between Days and uh, Prince Raspberry Beret. I was
6: going to say, no surprise to know that I bought Viva La Rock a few days later. It was written about in my diary, I think it was a couple of days later. And bizarrely enough, in a little twist of fate, uh, there's a link to this podcast with Viva La Rock because a few record store days ago, um, Adam Ant was in a certain record shop in Liverpool and Tim got my copy of that very single signed to Gavin from Adam Ant. <laughs> Along with my copy of Car Trouble as well, so uh, that's come full circle. That's nice, isn't it, Tim? What was he like when you met him? Was he all right, Tim? He was lovely.
1: He was lovely. Adam, poor old fellow. He was a bit. It was a bit. Um, they hadn't quite realised how many people were going to show up uh, to see him. Um, we were thinking, oh, you know, maybe a hundred, and there was this enormous queue and it was snaking around the block. Half of Liverpool turned up to to get his autograph. I think we ended up turning people away because there was he had to get off and do his show. You know, he was in dire straits, literally. <laughs> and uh, I, I did I did get the chance to put my arm around him, get get your album signed, and get a nice copy of Dirt Wears White Socks signed. And uh, my last vision of Ant was him being bundled up the back stairs by uh, my <laughs> colleagues uh, uh, Anthony and Carl, who run that record shop in Liverpool, to the uh, exit of the back, so that Beatlemania style he could escape from. Uh, You know, (laughs) this enormous throng of fans and get to the gig. It was the
0: most rock and roll thing you can imagine. Vive rock that day, that's for sure. (laughs) Gav, do you want to take us through that uh, Human League feature there and uh, introduce us to it?
6: Yeah, this is uh, Tom Hibbert. talks about Dare selling squillions of copies, and it says, Things look pretty all right for the brilliant-conceived pop combo from Sheffield. Then things started to go horribly wrong. Their next LP, Hysteria, took ages to make. And when it did come out, not many people bought it. Then the group all went a bit mad. So what went wrong? We find out a little bit about the madness, really, that was going on in this article. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite an odd one. I mean, sitting on a park bench, uh, we don't know. It says that they're in the studio polishing off a new long playing waxing. I presume they're down in London somewhere. It doesn't actually say whereabouts they are. And it says that uh, Phil is growing mutton chop whiskers Mutton chop whiskers. Yes, I wanted to look like Monkey off that Chinese TV programme, he says, but instead I look like the lead singer in The Flying Pickets. (laughs) Serves me right. They're coming off this afternoon. (laughs) He confesses quite, he's quite open about going a little bit potty. He says, um, I have examples of famous names I won't mention who'd gone through the process, sort of the process of sort of fame and then lunacy and and egomania that uh, ensued Uh, and who actually warned us about it. It was really depressing because they turned out to be right. But those same people who warned us about going potty and then went potty again themselves, we weren't so bad. We didn't become socially odd, but we were exhibiting strange little character things. And then Phil talks about um, tinkering obsessively with, with machines and, and just really getting into um, TV. It kind of paints a bit of a picture of him sort of, uh, yeah, just going slightly uh, frayed around the edges. Tim, were you a big uh, Human League fan? I know you like your electronic music.
1: Yeah, I mean, just purely in terms of liking them as on a purely pop level at the time, Um i have subsequently grown more fond of them, I think their, their sound their stuff sounds is aged that music has aged really well, but this year' right this is a strange interview, and you I've forgotten just how long they'd taken this it's two and a half years is an awful long time in pop, especially in the early eighties there's no way they're going to be on at live eight. clearly they are skirting the edges of the dumpy you're right modern romance are down there beckoning them down with with uh members of Joe boxers clearly um But he seems happy enough. Um, I think the album they're working on is called is is that album Crash, uh, which they did with um, Jam and Lewis, and it's got. I mean, it's got two absolutely cracking tunes, and it's got um, Love Is All That Matters, and uh, what's the other one? Human, which so they've still got some. uh, There's still a bit of pop left in the league. But, um, yeah, it's a strange interview. And he, his style, if you look at him on the first picture there, he, do, he does still look like he's out of 1980. He looks more 1983 than 1985. I'm not quite sure whether mm. they've quite figured out where they fit in. He'd obviously had a big hit with Giorgio Morodo with Electric Dreams. Um, and he's promoting the follow-up, which I don't think, I don't think it grazed. I don't think it troubled the charts. Um, yeah, so they're in, they're in a sort of weird hinterland, aren't they, between the giddy carousel and the dumper. Uh, and they would, yeah, like I said, I think they got another spin on the carousel with uh, Human and uh, Love Is All That Matters. But uh, yeah, yeah.
0: It, it is kind of odd trying to find out what, why this piece is in here. And, and it's not clear because it's, it's kind of builds a human league, but it was just talking to Phil Oki. And then there is just that passing mention of Electric Dreams and that there's another single out. And actually the album that Phil Oake did with Giorgio Moroder had just come out that week and that's not mentioned anywhere and you'd think that that had at least been mentioned so that there's a you know so you got some idea of why this piece was in there but it just kind of so, so like it feels it's just kind of been dropped in it's like why is that there you know the, the electric dreams had been the end of the year before so it just felt yeah it just felt really odd and it took me actually a little bit of digging to find out the reason for this being in here
6: yeah and what's surprising as well that he slags off electric dreams in this um Tom says, why did he do Electric Dreams in the first place? And Phil says, it was just a quick thing to do in a robot-like fashion. They sent me a tape. I wrote the words and popped down to London for two hours one afternoon and did it. I never liked that song. It was just an old-fashioned synth record, sub-romantic and a bit sentimental, but my words were good. I mean, Electric Dreams is a classic, right? It's a fantastic song.
1: Yeah, it's all right. It's, it, it's all right. And they actually tag it onto to the best of the Human League now, don't they? Even though it's a, Even though it's a solo single, really. But melodically, it has got that, Giorgio Moroder's an old schlager man, really, isn't it? And hes it, it's got that more of kind of old-fashioned sort of melodic sense to it, that, uh, whereas Human League are much more st- stronger and a little bit off-kilter, I suppose. Um, but I think he was, he was just excited to be working with Giorgio. But I think he was expecting to get another uh, Donna Summer, I Feel Love, rather than uh, Electric Dreams and whatever the title of that other track is that we've, glossed over in the interview <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good goodbye bad times there we are. that's it yeah and he's not too complimentary about his uh, fellow pop stars either we met Duran Duran on Top of the Pops when they were a joke everyone was talking about Spandau Ballet and there were these upstarts trying to be Spandau Ballet called Duran Duran and after that we were going to the Top of the Pops and we were getting smaller and they were getting bigger and bigger and he talks about he doesn't know if they'll be as popular again, but he kind of hopes so when, when the next album comes
6: out. Another uh, another couple of quick things I wanted to mention, because it is a very strange interview. Um, he talks about um, TV, and, and he wants to kind of start making exciting TV on an exploitation basis. I don't quite know what he means. And he says, I do have a weakness for seeing topless women on TV, which is a bit odd. I quite like seeing famous people without their clothes on. I think there's quite a lot of men that like, you know, seeing topless women. It's not that odd. I don't know. I'm saying, you know, and another very strange thing is when he starts talking about Princess Diana and Prince Charles. He says, uh, "Tom Hibbert says, well, you know, what like who? Who do you find attractive?" And he says, gives a little list, and then he says, "Princess Diana is hopeless, absolutely hopeless, a massive con job on the world. It's not her fault. She's probably all right. Prince Charles is definitely all right. He's doing all the things the Human League are doing," and then. Tell me if it says, pardon? Let it pass. <laughs>
8: <laughs> so
1: I've no idea what he's on about there. So there, there's an unreleased uh, solo <laughs> album with Giorgio Moroder and Prince Charles. <laughs> right. <laughs> Synth pop album we must hear.
0: Shall we take a look at RSVP? Yes, that's always one of my favourite. The, the one that, um, that that spoke to me was, hi, I'm 12 in September. Well, this could have been me writing because I was going to be 12 that September. And um, <laughs> whoever's uh, editing the, the letters here says, congratulations, I'm crazy about Prince and I also like the time, Sheila, Ian, Madonna. Um, but that's that's important, isn't isn't it? It's July, but she's saying, I'm going to be 12 in September, which is very important at that age. We get some more heavy metal haters as well. Hi, my name is Hayley, and I love Wham and Nick Kershaw. I hate heavy metal and mods. (laughs) And then there's a letter from a hedgehog.
6: Yeah, very bizarrely. I'm a self-confessed gorgeous male hedgehog. People think I get very big-headed, but that's only because I'm so beautiful. I'm into everything except Wham. 15 to 17-year-old girls, very specific, write to, the hedgehogs rule okay, committed. Uh, uh, Yeah, and then the address. I read that
0: out to Lynn last night, and she said he's trying too hard. Well, Kate, who's 13, she's into having a good time and digs Rainbow, Status Quo and most heavy stuff, but also likes Tears for Fears, Dead or Alive, King and Phil Collins. So one there for the uh, for the metalers. Well,
1: I think they should have reached out to uh, Teresa, who is from Eccleston, who uh, says, I'm a Bucks Fizz fan, anyone with things... Uh, about them write to me they could have really used her later on in their in their magazine when we get to the uh bucks fizz <laughs> um audition section where they interview a series of people who've turned up to audition to be replacement for uh jay Aston in uh bucks fizz um all of whom look like they could quite easily step into her uh formidable shoes but to a woman pretty much all of them when called upon as to whether they uh actually like the fizz and their oeuvre unanimously uh, a bit non-committal at the very best <laughs> as to their their love for the fizz uh, so uh, if only uh, Teresa from Eccleston if only she'd uh, got herself down to the audition she could have uh, been the new Jay Aston because he's the only person who likes Buck's Fizz in the whole issue apparently
0: yeah I've got to say
6: she's a lone voice there on the next page from RSVP we've got an advert for Bruce Springsteen Glory Days and it's Bruce in concert with his guitar looking slightly sweaty and earnest and really meaning it, man, and I'm just a prisoner to rock and roll and all. And the caption above it says, imagine this picture five times as big in colour and on your wall. Well, you wouldn't, would you? <laughs> you wouldn't want that?
7: Who'd want that? <laughs>
6: Even Bruce Springsteen wouldn't want that. It's terrifying. Yeah, it would terrify you. <laughs> it's be,
1: can anyone measure it and find out how big that would be? I don't think I've got a wall
0: big enough for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
6: But there was a thing in the 80s for big posters, wasn't there?
0: yeah. They tear really easily. And there's um, Toya on the opposite page. What one for all the uh, one for all the pervs out there? Well, Phil Oakey'd like that one. Well,
6: Phil Collins <laughs> is getting his eye in, isn't he? Gavin, <laughs> <laughs> would
0: you like to? Uh... Well,
6: yes. Phil Collins. He's got a strange sort of monkeyish kind of pose there, and he's got very creased crotch in his trousers. I don't want to look too much at his trouser area, but uh, and then he's staring across the page at. What can only be described as Toya's breasts, really, that are in a, encased in a translucent sort of uh, emerald bodice. I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what it is she's wearing. I don't know if she knows what she's wearing, but uh, yeah, Phil's Phil's getting a great good look. <laughs> I
1: I think it's painted on. I don't think she's actually. I think she's possibly just. It's just a a, a sort of oil paint. Really? Don't know. i have not studied it that closely. Uh, I'll be honest. It's got a very high sheen on it. Don't know. I mean let's not just sit here staring at the, as <laughs> three middle-aged men now staring at a picture of Toya. Um now to be fair I'm I've clicked uh, off it already. <laughs> now to be fair as well uh Ms Wilcox is uh definitely loitering perilously close to the uh to joining members of Joe Boxers and uh Roman Holiday and the Dumper surely. I'm impressed that they're still printing her lyrics. I don't think she'd had a hit for so she certainly wasn't in the queue for live age. She'd not had a hit for some years, but uh, yeah, they're still sticking with Toya, aren't they?
6: I was just looking on uh, on Wikipedia to see "Soul Passing Through Soul" and where it got up to, and uh, unsurprisingly, yes, it failed to enter the top forty and peaked at number fifty-seven. Even Viva La Rock went higher than that. <laughs> oh. So yeah, yeah. The next feature we get to is uh, the Bucks Fizz audition, as as Tim alluded to earlier. Jay Ashton has uh, split from The Fizz and they're looking for a replacement. So they hold an audition in London. Is it in London? Yes, at the Prince of Wales Theatre. Applicants have to be no taller than five foot four so as not to dwarf the tiny fellas and come <laughs> with their own sheet music prepared to sing and dance and beam and dazzle. On a grey Friday morning, 800 so-called hopefuls formed a queue around the building or 801, actually, if you count, smash its very own undercover auditiony stooge Karen Kaye. If I get this job, I'll kill you, warned Karen ex bass player of punky girl group The Gym Slips, and not a fizz fan. Something she has in common with apparently the other 800 women that turned up. Um, Luckily, she didn't get the audition, and she said it was a. They took them in 50 at a time, and there were these men in suits, and women and a woman writing things down, and we had a sort of parade about, like a beauty contest, and they just said, you, you, and you, and picked three out of the 50, and then said to the rest of us, Leave as quickly and quietly as possible. No, thank you very much for coming or anything like that. So uh, it sounds quite a dispiriting uh, audition in uh, in every sense. And as Tim said, there's a, a sort of a vox pop with quite a number of the young ladies that auditioned. And the one thing they all seem to have in common, you know, there's some brunettes, there's some blondes, there's some with rope around their heads, some with big bubbly perms. You know, there's every kind of, uh, every hairstyle and clothing sense, a lot of white. <laughs> Lots of white clothes. But uh, the main thing is that none of them really seem to like um, Buxfizz at all. I'm particularly attracted to Alison from Surrey, who's uh, on the left of Zandre from London, who's the one with the uh, big chunky rope round her forehead. And uh, she looks a bit like uh, the replicant out of Blade Runner. She says, I haven't decided what to sing. God knows why I'm here. I sincerely love Buxfizz. Brackets detectable note of sarcasm
0: here. So... (laughs)
6: I don't really know why
0: they all went, but uh, there you go. Dominique above her uh, from Hampton. I should be in college today, but it's maths and I don't really like maths. Uh, Books Fizz, their image used to be a bit too glossy, but now Jay's gone. I think they're looking to change to something more sellable long hair and bodices, something like that. I like any music apart from reggae and punk. I don't mind heavy metal. I can get into that.
1: I like uh, Susanna from <laughs> Guildford and she's going to sing uh, Will You by Hazel Connor. And uh, she's witheringly signs off by saying, Bucks Fizz are all right, but I prefer music that's a bit more substantial.
6: Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> she should get a job writing for the NMA. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. They're all kind of blotting their copybook a bit with this because if they had a got the job and then Bucks Fizz had read about it and smashed it afterwards and they're, they're saying... I don't really like Bucks Fizz, you know. <laughs> Music's not very substantial. I don't know what I'm doing here. I think they'd have had a very short
0: tenure in the group. I think uh, Bucks Fizz would probably agree with them, to be honest.
1: We must mention Zandre, spelled X-A-N-D-R-E, after her granny. I mean, yeah. Uh, who has got like a rope around her head. She, she's uh, get, reminding me she looks like one of the sort of like female villains off Doctor Who. Uh, you know, she probably would have been zapping in with some sort of laser gun later on. And she's going to do, I mean, dear God, I can imagine when she, she walks into the audition, she's going to sing Dinah Ross's Last Time I Saw Him. And she's doing two songs. She's already decided. She's having two numbers. She's doing Dinah Ross and Yesterday by the Beatles. I sing in my dad's group. His, na- his surname's Cooper. We were called the Cooper Cuties, but I'm a secretary now <laughs> with that rope around her head. So, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't like Bucksfield either. She prefers <laughs> Dead or Alive, Frank goes to Hollywood paul young and howard jones so in a way Zandra, she's just like the rest of us really isn't she
0: well i, I was wondering you know because they have them, them <laughs> barriers up Some they would have had it in, in the swanky nightclubs in london you know to stop people getting in or to stop her from going in the vip area the barriers up the, the where it's roped off and it looks like she's pinched the rope from from one of those barriers and just kind of <laughs> stuck it around her around
1: <laughs> yeah it, at the back it's still got a little tag on saying do not enter vip yeah. only um <laughs> But <laughs> nowadays, now I mean, this is this is a nice little bit of investigative journalism by Smash Hits. But nowadays, they'd make a six-part TV series about this on ITV One, wouldn't they? You know, new find the new book Bucks Fizz member, right? So, uh, yeah, they just just a little magazine article right at the back of Smash Hits now.
6: While we're talking about Bucks Fizz, we should mention because I don't think we've talked about it before the fantastic performance. I'm sure uh, you both know what I'm talking about. The is it a German TV show? Yes, where. They sing. I can't remember the name of the song. It's sort of late period fizz. <laughs> and they're kind of on in sort of uh, what can only be described as perv gear, really. And they're playing like... You've seen it, right?
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. There's a little kid with his mum at the front, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're
6: playing for some families. And there's a young lad at the front who does not know <laughs> where to look. And his mum's staring at him. It's the funniest thing. I wish I could remember the name of the song, but I'm sure... Uh, sale find it and put it in the video list but i know it's not from this period particularly but it's fantastic
1: i think it was if you can't stand the heat get out of the kitchen and the the little lad at the front he's probably a little bit young they're all properly doled up in proper like fetish gear as well but you know egg baker and uh they're properly styling it out mike nolan's loving it he's you know he looks like he's been doing that all his life but yeah it's really funny and the little (laughs) lad at the front he's just trying he's like what what looking all around you know imagine watching when you're a little kid and something a little bit saucy comes on the telly and your mum and dad are there and it's an awful cringe worthy moment and you're just staring at the floor and like and usually there's a tut oh look at that disgraceful and imagine that but you're being filmed while doing it on television Amazing.
6: We should also mention the winner of the competition to uh, join Bucks Fizz is Shelley Preston from Wareham in Dorset. And I had a quick look online. She was with Bucks Fizz and then obviously there were some inter-band wrangles. So she was then with the original Bucks Fizz, uh, sang with the Brian May band. And then it says in 2001, she was in gi- invited to join chill out lounge band Cloudfish with Steve Norman from Spandar Ballet, who then she was married to and they divorced in 2015. So she had quite a pop life for a while, being in the fizz and married to Steve Honkin Norman <laughs> out of the Spans. Skipping through a few pages and we get to a two-page feature, one of which is a big photo of him, is Belouie, Belouie, Balouie, some... Uh, the two-hit wonder... <laughs>
0: Was it that many? It says, three years ago...
6: <laughs> There's some people, and... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Three years ago, Neville Keithley was on the dung heap and a bit fed up, but then he changed his name, and hey, presto, he now gets to sing with incredibly famous musicians, to drink cocktails with international celebrities, and to lie around swanky hotel swimming pools with Frankie Goes to Hollywood it's alright for some says Dave Rimmer so you join us uh, in Hollywood at the Sunset Marquee Hotel picture the scene there's Billy some sitting around having a cocktail Holly Johnson's over there Lamal pads purposely about in a pair of baggy floral swimming trunks the other members of Frankie uh, are splashing around in the water uh, record producers and uh, yeah various uh, record industry and music biz folks all around and Neville Keithley is uh, about to release his third British single, Some People, and uh, he's, he's living the life. He's supporting Frankie Goes to Hollywood. His looks changed a bit, as it said earlier on in the introduction. Three years ago, he was you know all washed up, but now here he is with the band who are one of the hottest bands in the world at this moment, Frankie. And uh, all he seems to be doing with his time is just chucking people into swimming pools, really. that's <laughs> That's kind of... His main hobby by the... Uh... And getting trolled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting trollied, um chatting at women and uh, pushing people into swimming pools. Tim, I feel like I should pass over to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I just, uh, reading this, I just developed a sort of pathological dislike of this man. Um, can you imagine what incredibly tedious company he must be? So, oh, watch out, Balooey's about, right? Things are going to get crazy, Balooey's... Had a few gins, and he's going to throw, pe- you know, he hilariously throws his female uh, press officer in the swimming pool twice. Oh, how she must have laughed! Oh, you know, going off to wash my clothes again. Bluey's chucked me in the pool again. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I just really took a dislike to this guy, and especially with the way he signs off with "I'm a decadent rock and roller." We just, think, oh, just get de- you straight down the dumper now, you yeah. right. Um, and also, last night we had a little chat on, on WhatsApp, <laughs> didn't we, about his uh, sexy video. So uh, I'm sure it'll be on the video playlist, the um, the full-length version of the video for Imagination, which I think was a huge kind of video jukebox hit, not because of Balooey and his uh, completely forgettable featureless face uh, and his, his, his hideous blonde proto m m kind of hair. Um, it was a, because the it, the video is stacked full of very short clips of uh, completely incomprehensible arcadia bonkers plot to it and it goes on for about an hour and it's got lots of nudity and females in various states of und- undress and some sort of nod to the shining where he gets in bed with the woman and she turns into an old lady and all that kind of thing uh it, i mean it, it, it's hideously awful and, and and quite amusing at the same time but, i mean any sort of erotic charge that this video may have had is completely dissipated the moment that Bluey's uh, visage hose into view, you know, completely throwing cold water over uh, any excitement that may have been generated by, uh, you know, the erotic happenings in this video. I've I've given more thought to uh, old Argos catalogs from 1985 and uh, jumble sales that I particularly enjoyed uh, than this uh, tedious, boring idiot. Uh, His his, his appalling, uh, featureless face and his his habit of throwing women into uh, swimming pools. So, uh, yes, Mr. Sum, I... I uh, send you straight to the dumper, uh, Joe Boxers <laughs> are there, with, uh, and you can sit and have a drink with them, and you can chuck as many people into the pool as you like in the dumper where you belong, sir. Let's hope he doesn't follow you guys on Twitter, because yeah, that's... go
6: straight to the dumper, do not pass go, do not collect £200. Yes!
1: I really hope he doesn't follow you guys on Twitter, because I just lost you a Twitter follower there from Balooey, but uh, yeah.
0: He's still out there doing his thing, but uh yeah, I mean, looking at him uh, and looking at him in, in the video as well, he just looks like a right arrogant knobhead, and I think knobhead is probably the, the, the right word to to describe him. Just that that look in his eyes, he's just got contempt in his eyes and he looks pretty much wasted on that photo as well in Smash Hits. But I was doing a bit of digging, you know, just trying to find out how did such a pointless pop star with the most vacuous music get to be in Smash Hits and and in the charts? And it turns out on, on his album, he's got... Most of David Bowie's band from Let's Dance and Young Americans playing on there. Carlos Alomar, David Bowie's guitarist for many years, is uh, like his band leader. He's got Robin Clark, who was singing with uh, Simple Minds in 85, but uh, sang with David Bowie on, on Young Americans. He's got Half of Chic on there. So an amazing group of musicians just playing the most awful Music, so you know, imagination and some people are basically just three notes repeated over and over and over in just some sort of like ersatz funk kind of way with all the, you know, all all the energy that, that, that the musicians could muster. But even they can't make it shine or anything like that. But it says here about the beginnings of the band as it originally was. After five weeks of rehearsals, he began playing odd nights at London's Embassy Club and soon began pulling crowds. One night, the crowd was the Duran Duran party after the Prince's Trust concert two years ago. Duran managers Paul and Michael Barrows were just starting a publishing company and offered Neville's manager a deal after hearing him play just one song. Two days later, Neville was a fully-fledged recording artiste. And I think it's that um, Duran Duran connection that's that's quite telling. He's on the same record label. But also, I think with the Imagination video, they were trying to pull a Girls on Film stunt. So like Godly and Cream did that um, video for Girls on Film for Duran Duran, which I think was like the second or third single. Uh, quite controversial at the time with, was it uh, female um, wrestlers or boxers or something like that? Wrestlers. Wrestlers, yeah. And it all, all gets a bit kind of sordid and, and whatnot. And I think they're, they're just repeating that trick just to get him some attention. And it didn't work. I think they released this single about four times before it actually... Made it into the top twenty in nineteen eighty six, uh, and it's just oh, it's just vapid. It's it's, <laughs> it's a vacuum. That's what Bluey Sum is. Is a vacuum. He it needs, it needs to get in the dump with Jimmy the Hoover. <laughs> Jimmy the Hoover were better. Oh, way better. Well, I think this brings us to our, our last feature in this edition of The Hits. Uh, It's William Shaw talking to the Redskins. They think Live Aid is sickening. They reckon the Queen must feel a complete wally. They want to bring down post-war consumer capitalism. They're fed up with being called dingbats. William Shaw sympathises with the Redskins. And he takes them down to Fleet Street to do an interview with them uh, because the latest single, Bring It Down, This Insane Thing, is all about the tabloid press, the Redskins have got it in for the Red Tops and talking about the video for the song, obviously they they were quite a, a, a very serious very left wing right on band and in the video for the song the Redskins are seen ripping up copies of tabloid newspapers and to star in it they've got none other than lefty comedian Alexis Sale all doled up to look like Daily Mirror owner Robert Maxwell and dancing around like a gross spitting image puppet how did Sale get roped into this? Roped in, splutters Chris. He wasn't roped in. That makes him sound like a whale or something. Well, he's bald, continues Chris. What more could we want? Martin Hawes, bassist, and the other half of the Redskins answers a touch more seriously. We always get accused of being humourless and serious and all that sort of crap. So we thought we'd get someone funny in the video, but we got Alexis Sale instead. Ho, ho, blurts Chris. <laughs> um, I don't know if you had a, had a little look at the video and... It's not even funny. No. <laughs> it's still it's still serious. You can't tell it's Alexis Sale either. No, you have
6: to kind of squint a bit to see it's Alexis Sale. And, you know, he was a very well-known comic at the time. But, uh, well, it still is today. But um, there's not really a lot of humour in it, is it? And uh, you do feel after watching it, I mean, it's not a terrible video, but you do feel a bit bludgeoned around the head by all the stock footage and the... Uh... Yeah.
0: I mean, they weren't a terrible band either. No, right? no. And, and it's actually quite a good piece. It's quite a lively piece. Um, and it's something different to usual, um, well, certainly different to the Billy Lewis Sum piece. At least the Redskins have got a mm. point to their existence and don't just want to be famous and, and getting trollied every night uh, on Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Expenses account. But yeah, it is quite an enjoyable piece where a Marxist-Leninist rock and roll band whose opinions are pretty far to the left of Ken Livingston, Tony Benn and even Paul Weller.
1: I have to I don't really remember them very well at all. Um, I mean, it's good that there's a voice of dissent again in this issue and they're not blanket uh, praising Live Aid and all it stands for. So I guess they're there to create a little bit of balance. Many memory of this group. And I know lots of people really love them. I think they've got a real, they've still got a, a, a following to this day. My only memory is them of we think we had. There was a magazine called The Hits. Did anyone remember this? It was almost like a grown-up Smash Hits. And I think my sister got it, and it had stapled to the front a seven-inch single, which uh, which has got I think Simply Red, Style Council, G. Uh, Samara Chain, and the Redskins. So uh, the red theme. Ran out after two tracks, but uh, it's very 1985 kind of cool music, isn't it? So, um, and it's got a big boxing glove on the front. And I remember that, but I don't remember, I remember playing the Dreesis and Mary Chain track, which I think is uh, a B side, I can't remember. Is it which type? Is it Kill Surf City or something? What is it? Taste
0: of Cindy. Taste
1: of Cindy, yeah. So I remember putting that
0: on. I'll tell you what, exactly what it's on because it's in my hand. Yeah, yeah Redskins kick over the statues, the Ramsey McKinnock mix, simply red, every bit of me, style council walls come tumbling down, mm. live at Manchester Apollo, and yeah, that um, that Jesus and Mary Chain track with uh, Bobby Gillespie on drums. Okay.
1: So I remember that. I remember that one more than the others because that is quite a. That's quite something. That's the first time I heard any of their stuff properly. So, uh, yeah, that's my only memory. Of, I don't remember playing the Redskins song very often. I don't think we thought a lot of it. Well, it wouldn't have been my sort of thing then. Shouty, skin-eddy, punky music, really. But fair play to them.
6: As Tim said, there's a nice kind of... It's nice that there's a bit of balance there because, obviously, at the beginning of the magazine, there's many, many pages devoted to Live Aid. And we talked earlier as well about how the other weekly papers like The Melody Maker and The Enemy were a lot more critical of um, of the event. And there, there is at least a little bit of balance in Smash It. Um, he asks, uh, what do you think of the Live Aid project? Sickening, income. Chris's angry reply. When you see it from the inside in particular and you see all the agents scrambling to get their bands on, it's got damn all to do with high-minded ideals. It's quite revolting in the way that it's worked. And then it says, Martin storms in. It's the same companies who've donated their proceeds from Band-Aid to Ethiopia that are precisely the ones who are making people in Ethiopia starve. I wouldn't particularly criticise Bob Geldof. The bloke thinks he's genuinely doing something. But basically it's charity, and charity never solved anything and never will do. All these people who are given donations, yeah, it does help to relieve the starvation, but in five years' time that starvation is going to be back again. So um, a little uh, a little bit of balance with, um, with what had gone on earlier on in the paper, which I think is, you know, is a healthy thing whether you agree with them or not. You know, it's... Um, I think it's good to sort of have that debate and to have that voice of dissent in there. Well, he's got he's got a point, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think someone mentioned the politics in America in particular earlier on, and, you know, and he's talking there about seeing it from the inside and the agents trying to get their bands on. And we know that there was a big bounce after Live Aid and that lots of bands had a massive upsurge in, in album sales. And, uh, you know, you don't know really what went on behind the scenes, but uh, there must have been some... Uh, some shady dealings here and there, I'm sure, or you know, some kind of uh, little agreements made and stuff. So, it's only rock and roll,
0: yeah. But it feels like the piece is just getting going, uh, and then it ends with So, what's your favourite colour? I suppose you want us to say red.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of abrupt ending, isn't it?
0: <laughs> End of piece. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this edition of the hits. Obviously, dominated very much by Live Aid, but looking back at, at this one, and I guess you know it, it was inevitable, really, that so much of the, the magazine was going to be devoted to it. But in terms of the rest of the content, as we say these days, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, Tim? Uh, there's
1: not a huge amount left in it. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness for Live Aid. Uh, they would obviously held back and I'd say they got this edition out really quickly after the event. Otherwise, they'd have been definitely looking in reception, desperately hoping that Marilyn or Toya were uh, lurking to get them to come and do a feature. What it does say, and and if you, I did look at the previous edition, and there is a preview of Live Aid, and one of the there are various predictions, one of which is that Bono is going to do a 23-minute version of Smoke on the Water. Well, I mean, apart from the song, they weren't far wrong there, were they? <laughs>
6: I mean, yeah, the the rest of the uh, issue, yeah, it is. Uh, it feels like all the energy has been sucked into that. The first ten pages on Live Aid, and that's that's taken sort of ninety percent of the effort and time and energy, and then the rest, it's a little bit kind of, will that do, isn't it? I mean, I think the interview with Phil Oakey is very entertaining and quite strange, but I really enjoyed reading that. Not so much Mr. Sum. <laughs> I mean, and th- to be fair as well, the Bucks Fizz piece was was quite a giggle as well. I enjoyed that. The next issue looks good there's a little advert for the next issue there's not a lot of information but it's it says uh coming up on July the 31st Tom Bailey the Smiths adamant go west and the cure so for the Smiths adamant and the cure I'd have definitely been all over that one so I'd have probably got more out of the next issue to be honest than I did this one I was still nursing a bit of a live aid hangover when this came out and the other stuff that was in the magazine there wasn't really an awful lot that appealed to me but and as William Shaw said, you know, it was such an amazing effort to get it out. You think in those days to get out a, a magazine of Smash It's quality in four days after Live Aid is is really going some. So, you know, hats off to them. Very impressive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it probably is out of all the um, issues of Smash It's that, that I've kept. And we know that I've kept a lot. <laughs> this is undoubtedly my most read my most looked at one simply because of the the live aid feature and reading along when i was listening to the tapes that i'd taped off the radio but talking about that next issue on the letters page unsurprisingly it opens with i would like to thank every single person involved in the live aid concert it was without doubt the most memorable day of my life truly the day to remember lisa london Uh, And the uh, comment uh, from that by black type is um, about 17 trillion letters in a similar vein. Ah, Well, we all seem to be in agreement on this one for once. Bob Geldof, God bless you, (laughs) ma'am. And uh, a a Live Aid hangover on the back of that one with uh, a nice photo of uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger in their Dancing in the Street video. Lovely. Well... Thank you, Tim, for joining us once again on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Hope you've uh, enjoyed your uh, second trip and uh, you haven't got too dizzy there. It's been a blast. It's been a real right-knuckle ride. Uh,
1: I am ready to get off now. I'm feeling slightly sick.
6: Are you going to stay in the fairground in case we need you again?
1: I'll, I'll be I'll be loitering next to the coconut shy. Uh, you can Yay. you can bet your life. Yeah, yeah, as soon as you when when you run out of actual smash hits uh, writers and you know when Neil Tennant uh, has finally been on the show, you know, and all, all the rest of your hit list. I guess you know, give me a call. I'll still be here in reception.
0: <laughs> and uh, thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog Blog, where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. My final words are, don't mess with my toot-toot.